Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 113 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing season 4 of Game of Thrones and discussing how George R. R. Martin fans should deal with the prospect of the show spoiling future books in the series. But first up, we've got an interview with George R. R. Martin's former assistant, Ty Frank. He and Daniel Abraham, who we interviewed back in episode 35, write the Expanse series of space adventure novels under the pen name James S.A. Corey. The fourth book, Seabullaburn, is out now. The series is also being adapted for television by the Sci-Fi Channel. And now, here's our interview with Ty Frank. All right, so we're here with Ty Frank. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so your new book is called Seabullaburn, and it's the fourth book in the Expanse series, which is based on a pen and paper role-playing game that you created. So first off, why don't you just tell us a bit about how you first got into pen and paper role-playing games? Well, I, I don't actually know. I, I remember uh, playing Redbox D&D in, I think, grade school. That may have been the first one, but it, it just sort of seems like I've always been doing that. But actually, uh, The Expanse didn't start out as pen and paper. The Expanse actually started out as a pitch for a uh, MMORPG that never went anywhere um, and then became a pen and paper game after that because I liked the setting and wanted to see if it worked. Okay, so yeah, so why don't you tell us a bit more about the MMORPG project? Uh, there's Unfortunately, there's not a lot to tell on that one. Uh, a friend of mine uh, came to me and and asked me if I would help her develop content for an MMO that uh, uh, an ISP was looking to develop. And um, I, I had some notes that I'd been playing around with for sort of this near future sci-fi setting. Uh, she agreed that that would probably work for them. Yeah, the, the thing you have to know about the, the MMO stuff is that everybody wants to do fantasy, but World of Warcraft really owns that space. It's almost impossible to compete with them in fantasy. Um, and at the time, Eve was out as a sci-fi setting, but Eve was, it's a cool game, but it's limited to just the spaceships. And I, I really wanted a version of Eve or something like Eve where you actually could get off of your ship and, and have adventures, um, you know, on the ground. And so that was sort of the, the initial idea. And then, and then I took, you know, this near future setting and sort of built it out to accommodate spaceship and ground-based adventure mm-hmm. and so the so the different factions that we see in this world kind of came out of the structure of an of an mmo yeah it did um you know we we wanted to do different things from world of warcraft so of course they have two factions the alliance and the horde uh so we had three factions we had earth mars and the opa and those would have been the factions you started out you know your character in mm-hmm. and what is the opa uh the outer planets alliance that's everybody who doesn't live on earth or mars mm-hmm. And so why did you go why did you decide to go with a near future setting as opposed to a more of a Star Trek you know ships faster than light kind of stuff? Uh well two reasons. Um one and probably the most important one is that my favorite book of all time is is Stars My Destination by Alfred Bester. I, I read it when I was 11, which is way too young to read that book, so if you have 11 years <laughs> don't, don't let them read that. Um but it was exactly the right time to sort of rewrite my brain and I just became obsessed with the idea of this fully populated solar system, uh, which is the setting of that book, um, 
with people living on Mars, with people living on the moon, with people living on the various moons of the outer planets, um, that just stuck in my head and stayed in there for decades. And so when I was coming up with a setting for gaming, that that's the thing that bubbled up. And then the other reason is that that not a lot of people play in that space. I mean, there are some people doing really good work in that space, but but if you compare the number of people working in sort of that pre-faster-than-light sci-fi setting versus the people who are working in like Star Trek and all that where you have hyperspace or, or whatever, uh, it's a much smaller percentage. And very few people were working in the space where you take humans from the pre-FTL, trapped in the solar system kind of setting, to the galaxy-spanning empire setting, you almost never see that transition. That's a second act that you almost never see. And uh, I thought that was a really interesting place. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you, you developed all this content for the game. Um, so how, how much material had you come up with and what happened ultimately with that project? Well, uh, I actually came up with quite a lot. Um, almost everything that uh, is the later world building for the, the pen and paper game that followed and, and the books came out of that. Um, I sat down and went through all of the various bodies in the solar system, uh, what possible reason people would have for living in those places, you know, to, it, there's not a lot of, there's no economic reason to settle our solar system, so let's get that out of the way. There's no reason to do it. But if we were doing it, what would be the things that people would actually use on those various bodies? I, I did a lot of research on that. Um, and pretty much had mapped out the political situation in that setting, uh, what people were doing on the various bodies, why they lived there, um, what kind of cultures were, were springing up. All of that work had been done. Uh, and I had a, Daniel, my writing partner, tells this story that the first time he played in the pen and paper setting, I had this giant three ring binder full of notes. And, and when he found out that those were the notes about the solar system they were, they were gaming in, um, that's when he decided to ask me to, write the book with him because he hates world building and I had a giant three ring binder filled with world building that we could use. So, yeah. Uh, well, we'll talk a little bit more about that process of how you went from working on an MMO to working to, to running the pen and paper version. Yeah. So when the, the MMO project sort of fell through, uh, it was one of those things where everybody was really excited to do it, but nobody actually had the resources to do it. So even the people who had asked us to work on it, clearly didn't understand what they were getting into. Um, and once they did understand what they were getting into, they just sort of backed away slowly, which I totally respect. I mean, a project like that is, it's like making a Hollywood movie, uh, you know, making a, a game that can compete with World of Warcraft. You're t looking at tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars to develop a project like that. So I understand why they, once they realized that that's what they signed up for, uh, they sort of backed away. But I, I had all this material, and um, I, I've been a gamer all my life, so yeah, computer games and, and role-playing games. So I started playtesting the universe with my gaming buddies. You know, did it work? Do, were there interesting stories to tell? Um, what kinds of characters would be fun to play in that setting? And not with any real purpose in mind, just because that's something I do for fun. So, uh, yeah, I started uh, running games in the setting. I, you know, I, I came up with a rule system that worked um, for a pen and paper setting and uh, started started gaming in it. Uh -huh. And so did uh, when in this process had you met Daniel? Had you met him prior to starting? No, 
No, this actually, this I I started running games in this setting before I moved to New Mexico. Uh, so I I met Daniel years later when I moved to New Mexico, and uh, we were in the same writing group together. And uh, he and his wife uh, came over to do some gaming with my wife and I. And yeah, so and that was years years after I yeah I started running games in the setting. Actually, Daniel was late to the game. The first game I ran in this setting in New Mexico. Uh, was with a completely different group. Um, uh, that gaming group was Melinda Snodgrass and, and Ian Tregillis and George R. R. Martin. Um, and my wife were all in that other gaming group. Okay, so well, so how did you get involved with that gaming group? Uh, I, I just started hanging out with those guys and they love to game. And, uh, Melinda actually asked me, she's like, so I hear you, I hear you run a good game. Would you be willing to run a game for us? So. I, I agreed to do it, and this was the setting I had. And, you know, those are all sci-fi people. You know, Melinda used to write for Star Trek, and Ian writes uh, science fiction and fantasy, and George, you know, of course, writ had written a ton of science fiction before that. So it seemed like a, a good group to try out a sci-fi game on. Uh, but, I mean, so you moved to uh, Albuquerque, and then just how did you initially make contact with all these people out there? Yeah, we moved to Albuquerque so my wife could... Uh, do her undergraduate degree at UNM. So that was the, the initial reason we went there. Um, but I had one friend who lived there and she was in this writing group. Uh, and she went to the writing group and said, Hey, my friend is moving here and, and he's written some stuff. He has this, this particular writing group. You had to have a professional sale to get in. Um, they would only take people who had professional sales. So she went to them and said, Hey, he's got, he's got a professional sale. So that qualified me to get in and they met me and we all got along. So they said, Sure. Yeah. He can start hanging out. And that's how I met everybody was through that. And then, uh, George, uh, needed to hire somebody to run his multimedia empire. And, uh, Melinda again, who was sort of at the center of all this said, Hey, you should hire this guy. I had actually, before we moved to New Mexico, I had sold out of a, uh, financial software consultant company that I helped found. So uh, George had always been hesitant to hire anybody because he didn't want to hire somebody that he had to train. And Melinda's argument was, well, you know, this guy used to run his own consulting company and probably handle your stuff. So George took a chance and hired me to do that. Uh, well, that's really amazing. So how? So what's a, what's a job interview like when you're going to work for George R.R. R. Martin? Uh, actually, it really wasn't an interview because he's... You know, George has never had a real job other than, uh, like two years he spent as a college professor in like the seventies or early eighties. So uh, it wasn't really an interview. He, he said, so Melinda says I should hire you. And I said, yes. And here's why and laid out for him what I could do for him. And then I'm like that the next day I was there at his office setting up, uh, his new systems. So it was, <laughs> it was very informal. Uh -huh. Okay, yeah, so you mentioned, like, what is uh, George R. R. Martin's office like? I, I heard someone say he has two houses across the street from each other, and one's sort of his office house, and one's his home house. Is that true? It is. I, I Unfortunately, I, I can't talk too much about that, because we uh, we had talked a lot about it, and, and based on conversations we'd had in interviews about where his houses, people figured out where he lived. So, uh, yes, it is true that he has a couple of houses, one of which is his office, but I, I can't really talk about where that is or uh, what it looks like. Because <laughs> okay. people will figure it out and they start banging on the door. Yeah, no, I understand. I don't want to do anything to uh, yeah. Yeah, invade his privacy or anything. Um, 
But uh, I, I was also curious. I heard that he writes on a uh, he writes on uh, like an old DOS computer with WordStar. Well, he doesn't actually write on an old DOS computer. He did write on an old DOS computer, and then it died. Uh, uh, so he actually, uh, I built him the computer he writes on now, which is a state-of-the-art machine running DOS and WordStar 4.0. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so does it have internet access? Because I heard one of the big advantages of that old computer was it had no internet access, so you couldn't waste no. all day on that. It does not have internet access. He actually has two computers at his desk, one of which is a Windows machine where he does his email and all that. And then the other one is this DOS machine that he, he actually does his writing on. But he's just got a keyboard toggle to toggle between the two of them. So if he wants to waste time on the internet, he can. But yeah, uh, the, the real advantage with the DOS machine not being connected to the internet, of course, he cannot possibly get a virus on it. <laughs> yeah, that would be, or, or, ha or he doesn't have to worry about hackers, I guess. Uh. Not on that machine, no. There, it, it, there is a physical firewall in that you have to be sitting at that keyboard to have access to that computer. Mm -hmm. Well, I've heard you talk about how, I mean, since you worked for George R. R. Martin, people sort of assumed that he was kind of a writing mentor to you and all this stuff. But you've said that that's not actually the case so much. No, no. Actually, George, uh, the, the ways in which George was a really uh, great mentor were on the business side. George has worked in the writing world in TV and in novels and in feature production. He's done that for, you know, 30, 40 years. So on the business side, it was really great to be able to ask him, here's, here's what they're offering. Here's what the contract looks like. Um, what, what, I've been invited to do this. What's that going to look like when I get there? Um, he has enormous scores of experience on that stuff. So on that side, he really was a great mentor. Uh, but he and I have very different ideas on what constitute good writing. Um, and, and I'm a big fan of his, of his work, so I'm not saying that I don't think he's good. He's good at it. He is. He's clearly uh, one of the top writers in the field. But how you get to putting words on paper, sort of the pre-production process, he and I worked very differently. So there wasn't a lot that we could talk about meaningfully on that side. Yes, I mean, because he talks in terms of gardeners and architects, and so I guess you're more of an architect? Actually, I think that distinction is a false distinction. I, he, he really loves that idea, <laughs> but I think, I, I think it doesn't really actually make any sense. And he and I had several arguments about it. You know, friendly arguments, but we had several arguments about it. And he's actually changed how he describes it now because of our arguments. Um, and he no longer talks about it like these are two separate things. He now talks about it, everybody is shades of both. But the truth is, I don't think you can... I think if you have an ending in mind, I don't think you can get there unless you, you roadmap out how to get there. And he is much more of a sit down at the keyboard, wait for the muse to strike, and bang out whatever chapter is sort of banging around in your head at that time. Um, that works for him. He, he's able to produce work, so uh, you know more power to him. But that just seems like a really inefficient way to get a story out. For, from my perspective, for me as a writer, um, I could not do that. I have to know where I'm going. I have to know what the next chapters are about so I can start layering and foreshadowing and all the other stuff that that you want to do I, he's much more comfortable rewriting chapters over and over and over and over again than i am i for me a chapter is like a spell in old D D, where once you cast that spell it's not in your memory anymore hmm. um 
So once I've written a chapter, I can't go back and rewrite that chapter. I can't. I can edit it, but I can't like completely rewrite it the way he does. We just have very different brains for for doing this work. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, speaking of your writing, let's go let's go back a little bit now. So you mentioned that you joined this writers group because you had at least one pro sale under your belt. Sort yes. of. How did yeah. you? How much writing did you do, kind of, when you were younger, and how did you get to the point where you had the pro sales that qualified you to join this writing writers group? Uh, yeah, it's a weird and twisty tale. Um, I, uh, I I never I had done a lot of prose writing. I you know I mean I'd done a lot of sort of informal writing for uh, gaming settings and that sort of thing. I, I liked running games; that was my thing. But I would spend a lot of time writing uh, sort of world building kind of stuff, which is not good prose. You couldn't sell that. But I had done a lot of that sort of writing, where you know. The, the kind of the Silmarillion type thing where you're writing the backstory of the world kind of kind of work. And then my sister, uh, she was doing a creative writing class and she asked me for an idea for a story and I gave her an idea that had been banging around in my head. And she wrote a story and gave it back to me and she had done it all wrong. So I wrote my version of it, the version that actually was in my head, and then didn't do anything with it. Just I wrote it and then I had it. But at the time, I was interacting online with some people who were in sort of uh, Scott Card's camp, Orson Scott Card, in Scott's camp. And um, one of them had worked with him on another project. And I said, hey, I wrote this story. Take a look at it. Tell me what you think. And I emailed it to her. And she read it. And she wrote back. And she's like, this is great. Um, I'm going to show it to Scott. And I, and I was not sure how I felt about that. But, you know, whatever. That's cool. So he was staying at her house, and she she gave him the story that I'd written, and he apparently told her, you know, I'm hearing the second hand through her, but he apparently told her, this is great, and this person should be writing more stuff. And then later, Scott started running uh, what he called the Writer's Boot Camp, which was a two-week intensive writing course, sort of like a two-week version of Clarion, with him as the teacher in North Carolina, and it happened to coincide with a time when I had left one job and uh I had a I had a non compete agreement with that company so they had to give me a giant sack of money when I left. And I wasn't sure what to do, so I said, Hey, maybe I'll just like not take another job right away. I'll go do this writer's boot camp. And my wife was fine with it. She was like, Yeah, that sounds like fun. We should do that. So I went and spent two weeks in North Carolina doing the writer's boot camp. And then, you know, that was the end of that. And then took another job somewhere else. And uh, Scott emailed me and said, hey, I'm starting up this magazine, Intergalactic Medicine Show, and I'd really love to buy that story you brought to the boot camp with you. So I was like, sure, why not? Uh, well, he was paying pro rates, so I got a pro rate sale out of that. And then later he, he wrote back, he's like, hey, I'm doing a selected, selected stories from uh, Intergalactic Medicine Show. It's like the best of kind of thing, and I'd like to buy your story for that, too. I was like, okay. So now I had two pro sales. Well, you know, same story, but uh, pro rates both times. And then wrote back later and said, hey, I'd like to do a sample of that for an audiobook, and I'd like to buy your story for the audiobook. So now I had three pro sales, all the same story, of course. <laughs> but every time I was getting pro rates for it. So when I moved to New Mexico, um, I, I had more pro sales than some of the other people in the writing group, you know, who'd been writing a lot longer than I had. So that's sort of what got me in the room. Uh -huh. Okay, and so then you, you joined the writer's group and you started doing the pen and paper role-playing game and yeah. you met Daniel Abraham. And so how did that 
uh, lead to you guys writing books together? Well, yeah. So he he and his wife lived not too far from where, from where my wife and I lived in New Mexico, or in Albuquerque. And when he found out that I was running this game for George and Melinda and those guys, he said, hey, uh, would you be willing to run a game for, you know, here? Because th that game was up in Santa Fe, which is about an hour's drive. And uh, Daniel and his wife have a, have a young kid, and so it was harder for them to get up there. He's like, hey, if you ran a game here in Albuquerque, I would play in it. So I started running a game there, and that's when he saw the binder, and he said, uh, have you ever considered writing novels in this setting? And of course I hadn't, because I'm really lazy. <laughs> so he said, hey, you know what you should do? You should let me write a novel in this setting, and we can split the money, which is like, it's, it's like the opposite version of the gag that every writer hates when people walk up to them at a convention and say, hey, I've got a great idea. If you write it, we can split the money. So I actually had a award-winning and well-respected novelist coming to me and saying, you've got a great idea, I'll write it and we can split the money. Which he always tells me I'm not allowed to tell that story, but I tell it anyway. <laughs> uh, so he, he wrote the first chapter. And, and again, it was like the thing with my sister writing the story idea. He did it wrong. So I said, no, this is wrong. Um, I'm going to rewrite it. So I rewrote it the way I wanted it. And he said, yeah, no, this is actually great. He's like, you should just write half the book. So that's how we started. Was I wrote half and he wrote half. And and that's what we've done ever since. Uh -huh. And so how much work was it taking this, this world that uh, was originally conceived for games and turning it into the novel format? Like what sort of adjustments did you have to make to it? Oh, tons. Yeah. I, games are terrible books. And this is as something I always have to explain to people at conventions when I'm on panels and things. Don't take your D&D campaign and write it down as a book. Uh, it doesn't work. So what you can do is you, maybe you can take the setting, maybe you can take some of the characters, maybe you can take some of the plot points, but you have to you have to completely redesign the order of events because in gaming, of course, uh, so much of it is interactive and so much of it is, is you sort of as the game runner reacting to what your players have done and changing the setting or changing the story to accommodate the actions they've taken. Um, in a, in a novel, which is much more, you know, driven by the narrative, uh, you actually have to have a much tighter grip on where the story is going, um, much more control over how you release information to the reader. It's, it, it, it's if you if you actually read the game I had ran and read the story, you would recognize similarities, but the, the major plot is is very different, and and uh, how I feed information to the reader is very different than how I feed information to players. So, yeah, I mean, could you give maybe some specific examples from Leviathan Wakes of things that were changed to make that into a novel? Uh, wow, uh, I no, because I I did that like five years ago. <laughs> okay. My memories of that are fairly dim at this point. Um, I'll, just a lot of stuff. Uh, the, how the how the proto molecule manifests on Eros and what the characters do to get away um, is completely different. That was a much bigger portion of game plot, but in the novel, it just they're. Anytime we tried to keep them on Eros, it just made no sense. Um, so, you know, we just, we, we took what was a huge plot element of the game and just compressed it down to 
one escape sequence. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, and so you guys now, as I mentioned, you've written a bunch of these books. You're on the fourth one, Seabola uh, uh, Burn is the fourth one. So why don't we talk about that? Uh, first of all, just what does the title Cibola Burn mean, and how'd you come up with that? Uh, so Cibola is one of the seven cities of gold that the Spaniards were looking for. Um, so it kind of has that that sense of the great treasure that you commit atrocities to find but doesn't actually exist. You know, the Spaniards burned and murdered their way across uh Central America looking for this huge this huge payout in gold that didn't actually exist. Yeah, I mean they stole a bunch of gold from Montezuma, but this the the Cibola, the city of gold, the city made entirely of gold that they were murdering their way across Central America to find wasn't real. It was it was a myth. So the idea of people in history committing great atrocities to find treasures that don't exact actually exist uh, is one that sort of resonates in that book. Mm-hmm. And I guess all the titles in the series have some sort of meaning like that. They don't literally refer to things in the book, but they have some. No. Yeah, they're, they're all... Uh, Daniel says our titles are designed to let our readers know that we're pretentious. <laughs> and, and, and there is an element of that in there. But uh, yeah, they're all sort of mythological ideas that loosely tie into what tie into what we're doing um, the first one you know the the waking up the great monster that's been sleeping is is you know Leviathan wakes uh, the second one Caliban is the is the half human half monster that lives on the same island as Prospero in in the tempest um, who resists being controlled who who Prospero attempts to control and and Caliban fights back against being controlled by the wizard. Um, Abaddon in uh, Hebrew mythology, Abaddon is the angel that guards the gates to hell. Um, so, you know, that's what we're using there. And then Siebel, of course, is the, the cities of gold, sort of the, the treasure that you, that you are willing to commit murder to find that doesn't actually exist. Mm-hmm. And could you, I mean, I don't know how much you want to say about the actual plot of this, of Cibola Burns, but could you talk maybe just a little bit about how that relates to the events of this book? Well, I mean, we're, we're doing, each book is also us mashing other genres into sci-fi. Um, and, and the fourth book, we're sort of mashing sci-fi up with, uh, our, our Western. Um, it's our, our version of the, you know, the railroad coming through the town and um, what do you, what do people who are living hand to mouth do to protect themselves when giant corporate interests are just making a land grab? Uh, so we're playing with that idea a little bit and the the idea that that these worlds that the corporations are spreading out to have this wealth that that the corporations want to take and um, that. That people who are not wealthy, people who don't have power, are sitting on top of it, and how do you displace them? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, so the part of this book it deals with the first humans to settle on uh, an alien world. Yes. And you know, I think in a lot of science fiction, people don't really think through the the implications from biology of what it would be like to enter a completely alien biosphere. 
And I thought you guys did a really good job with that here. Could you just talk about what some of those biology, alien biology considerations are when you're the first person to set foot on an alien planet? Yeah. So, so Daniel has a biology degree. So we, we do like to play around with the idea of biology, you know, because he's got a, a background in that. Uh, the big one is the thing that always drive, drove both of us crazy is you get to the alien world and then you catch an alien disease, you know, like the Martians getting our diseases in War of the Worlds. You know, and of course, H.U. Wells had a much more limited understanding than we do today. But, but even the idea that aliens would have DNA is totally unfounded. I mean, yeah, that's our version of life stumbled across RNA and DNA as ways to create stable replicators. But those are by no means the only possible version of that. Uh, left-handed or right-handed chirality in proteins. Um, our version of life has a subset of that. That is no, by no means the only possible subset life could be based on. Um, uh, a scientist recently did an experiment where where instead of potassium, you can use, I believe it was cyanide um, as the basis for uh, some of the, the protein building blocks. And so you could have a life form that one of its primary building blocks is a deadly poison to us. Um, and that should go the other way, too. Um, the things that are essential proteins to our biology could easily be deadly poisons to another biosphere. So you, you know, you have things like the stinging insects that land on you, sting you, drink your blood and then fall over dead. Uh, because the things in our blood that are vital to our life are, you know, poisonous to that. Uh, or, or at the very least not nutritious. You know, the idea that we could eat alien life and get nutrition from that is a pretty big stretch. Um, just, you know, there's, there's a million variations on what life can be built from. And we have a tiny little subset of that. And the idea that our Venn diagram, our, our circle in the Venn diagram is going to over, overlap with their circle in the Venn diagram is, is a pretty big stretch. Um, and, and, and how does that look then when you've got two biologies on the same planet that have absolutely no overlap? Um, what is that wind up looking like? Uh, we, we like that idea, playing around with that idea. And of course, in, in ours, there's actually more biologies than that. You know, I won't get into that because it's spoilers, but just the idea of a whole bunch of different biologies in the same space, none of which can feed off of each other, none of which can, inter you know, I mean, we can interact physically, but biologically we can't interact at all. Um, and then once you do get, because one of the plot points is that people do start getting what appears to be a disease, what is that? Uh, because, because clearly it can't be a disease. <laughs> so. <laughs> So what looks like a disease and isn't is one of the things we played around with. Mm -hmm. um, so did Daniel know all the science that you guys uh, needed for this book, or did you have to consult any science, uh, any other scientists or experts or anything? Well, we do, but you know, Daniel's joke is that we aim for Wikipedia level plausibility. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're we want it to seem plausible, but we never want scientific rigor to get in the way of awesome. <laughs> so, so we, you know, we, we, we try to at least not be insultingly implausible for most things. I mean, we probably fail sometimes, but we try not to be insultingly implausible. But most of the research we need to do can be done with, you know, just reading, you know, finding biology texts. And, and there's a lot of people out there who have done work on, you know, other possible bases for life. Um, there was a guy who was 
for a while proposing the idea that life could have started out with a, a crystalline structure and then shifted to DNA and, you know, what would that look like? And, you know, it, just reading that stuff gives you great ideas. And then one of the main things you do is take out all the math so that nobody can double check your work and see all the things you screwed up. <laughs> um. Yeah, and also in terms, there's there's a lot of science in this book in terms of the orbital mechanics and things like that. Right. How did you guys figure all that stuff out? Uh, well, we, we take out all the math, so you can't double check our work. But um, you know, I mean, we we're we're both nerds, and we both read uh, a lot about the the early space program and and the idea of changing orbits and how you change orbits is is something that's just sort of part of at this point, part of the the sci-fi nerd's lexicon, um, but you know, if if we're if we're having somebody fire a railgun to add more energy to go to a higher orbit, as long as we don't tell you how fast any of that stuff goes or what orbital change they're getting out of it, as long as we leave that kind of vague, it sounds plausible, so it doesn't throw you out of the story. But we we make sure not to put any of the math in, so that the people who do understand all that don't check our work and point out all the places we did it wrong. <laughs> um, all right. And so you mentioned that before starting these books, you had only published maybe one short story, if I if I have that right. Have you? Uh... Yeah. Well, one short story that I actually got paid pro rates for. Okay. Yeah. Um, but so 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 you didn't have much experience writing fiction before starting the series, and now obviously you have a ton of experience writing fiction, having <laughs> written these four massive books. Um, could you just say like what some of the biggest lessons you've learned about writing, uh, you've learned over the past couple of years writing the series? Uh, a couple of things that I've learned is chapter length is definitely something you should consider before you start writing. One of the things we learned is that 3,000 word chapters are a fast pace that invites the reader to keep reading because it seems like most people have the energy to read about four or 5,000 words in one sitting. Um, and if they read, if you do 3,000 word chapters, that means they read a chapter and a half and most people aren't going to be satisfied reading a chapter and a half. So, uh, we, we get email and, and tweets all the time from people saying, uh, I stayed up all night reading your book. Well, there's actually structural reasons <laughs> why why our books invite you to stay up all night reading them, which some of which is the chapter length. Um, one of the other things I learned is um, people will think that the solutions to your character's problems are too easy. If you bring a problem up in one chapter and solve it in the same chapter, you can have exactly the same story but if you bring up the problem in a chapter and then wait till another chapter to resolve it, just by breaking it up across a chapter break, it doesn't seem like it was easy to do. That's not a thing people can teach you. That's not a thing people think about. You know, writing teachers talk about how to how to find your voice and how to develop character. And they, yeah, very few people talk about, here's what chapter link does for you. So that, that was cool to, to start learning that stuff. I actually feel like... so. Uh, I'll go off on a tangent for a second, but Michael Caine did a acting video in the eight, in the I think in the nineties, where it's like here's how to be an actor. And the thing that he did that I think is brilliant is he doesn't talk about how to act. He doesn't talk about here's how you find your character's voice and here's what the method is and all that stuff. He doesn't do any of that. His video is about here's how you find your mark every time. <laughs> here's Here's how when you are doing a close-up, you can avoid blinking during your close-up. I mean, all this sort of structural stuff 
that isn't the art of it, but is super vitally important to the craft of it. He did a video on that, and I think that's brilliant. And I actually kind of feel like at this point, I could do a writing class on that. On here's how you here's how you structure a chapter so that people will want to keep reading. Here's how you you know here's here, here's the writing version of not blinking into the camera on your close up. Um, that kind of stuff is stuff you don't learn until you actually write books and read reader reactions to them. Mm. So, I mean, do you get a great volume of reader reactions and do any of those reactions stick out in your mind? Uh, you know, you're going to get some. I mean, our, our, our books are pretty popular and, and a lot of people read them. Um, so you're going to get people who email you. You're going to get people who tweet at you. Um, uh, you're going to get reviews. I, neither Daniel or I are big fans of reading reviews on, on review sites like uh, Goodreads or, or um, uh, Amazon. Because uh, reviews tend not to be helpful, but when somebody writes you an email and says, "Hey, I was a marine, and you know this thing that you're having a marine in your book do doesn't read right to me, and here's why," that's actually really useful stuff. Uh, and and we do actually uh, listen to that kind of thing, you know, technical sorts of things. Um, or or the other uh, thing is like when somebody writes to you and says, "I really love this character." You know, then that makes you sit and think, okay, what did we do with that character and that made somebody fall in love with them? And, and how can we do more of that with our other characters? So that kind of stuff is, is a thing you pay attention to. Uh, all right, cool. And so then the other big news, obviously, with this series is that it's being turned into a TV series for the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, I'm actually at our production offices right now. I'm sitting in oh, the nice. executive producer's office doing this interview. Because <laughs> uh, he has a he has an office that's quiet. Uh Okay, well, yeah, so just to tell us how that first came about. Yeah, it, people always want a story on how we did it, but there isn't one because we didn't actually do anything. We, so we wrote the books, which is pretty much the end of uh, what we did to get this. We wrote the books. Um, our literary agent has a connection to a uh, Hollywood agent. And passed the books along to the Hollywood agent. And, and this part happened kind of without us knowing about it. Um, the Hollywood agent went out and, you know, took the books out and uh, started getting offers on them. That's pretty easy for, if you if you have a series that's popular at all, it's pretty easy to find option offers because they tend to not be a lot of money and studios and networks buy a bunch of options and just sort of hold on to them. So he got a bunch of option offers, but what we didn't know is that our Hollywood agent is awesome um, and he's super experienced. Uh, he's he he represents Dennis Lehane. Uh, he's the guy who took Band of Brothers and The Pacific to HBO. Our our agent is so I mean he's kind of a high powered agent. So he got a bunch of lowball option offers and turned them all down without telling us, just because <laughs> he didn't think it was worth anybody's time. So he just kept turning all these offers down, and what he kept saying is. I think I can get a lot for these books. Um, and I'm not going to take you seriously to the people who are making the obvious. I'm not going to take you seriously until you come to me with a production company and a writer already attached. And one of the people who'd been sniffing around the project is the Sean Daniel company, uh, which is a production company run by Sean Daniel, who used to be a big wig at Universal. And Sean has personally produced like 200 movies or some crazy number like that. I don't know what the exact number is, but pretty much any movie you mention, Sean will go, oh yeah, I produced that. Um, so he has his own independent production company now, and Sean knew 
Mark and Hawk, Mark Fergus and Hawk Kosky. They had worked together on another project. And Mark and Hawk are the writers of like Iron Man and Children of Men and a lot of high profile science fiction projects. So Sean took it to them and said, hey, take a look at this and let me know what you think and see if you'd be interested in being attached to this. They read the first book and apparently they liked it and they got back to Sean and said, yeah, we totally want to be involved in this. Uh, tell them that we've committed to, to doing it. So then Sean, came, Sean, his company came back to us and said, or came back to Brian and said, here's who we have attached. And then Brian and Sean and Mark and Hawk and uh, another guy named Jason Brown who works for Sean all of us sort of got on a conference call and they said, here's Mark and Hawk. They're committing to writing a pilot for this. Are you willing to give us the option so we can move forward? And then Daniel and I were like, yeah, that sounds great. We love those guys. You know, uh, we're both big fans of the first Iron Man. We thought it was a perfect blend of like sci-fi and action and humor. And, and we didn't want somebody who would be humorless about this. So we're like, yeah, people who can be funny, that sounds great. We, we want those guys. Uh, so they went off and they wrote a pilot and uh, then took that pilot to Alcon Entertainment, which is a big movie production company that's starting a TV division. So we were like the first project that Alcon was doing as a TV project. Alcon took it to a bunch of uh, networks. Uh, there was a bidding war, apparently. I was not involved in that piece, but I have heard that there was a bidding war. And uh, Sci-Fi was the one who put the most poker chips to the middle of the table, apparently. And uh, so that's who we're doing. We're, it's a joint Alcon TV and Sci-Fi Channel production, and that's how it happened. So as you can see, Daniel and I did almost nothing. Hmm. <laughs> we, we, through a lot of this process, we were baggage. Uh, we did come out when Alcon, or when uh, when Sean Daniel Company was pitching the project to the various networks, or the various production companies and networks. Um, Daniel and I did come out. We sat in the room for those sort of, I guess, as show ponies, <laughs> where they could turn and say, these are the guys who wrote the books. And, you know, we could wave. It's like a visual aid, sort of. Like a visual aid, yeah. And then um, once uh, we got picked up and uh, Alcon insisted that it was a direct-to-series thing, they weren't going to do a pilot, and Sci-Fi was willing to do a direct-to-series order. So once we got that, then... Um, we were invited by the executive producers to come out and join the writer's room and help uh, develop the story for the first season. And uh, we've been asked to write a script for the first season. So, yeah, uh, then then now we're really and I actually have uh, because I, of course, had figured out what all this stuff should look like years ago. Um, I've been asked to uh, help take point on the production side piece of it. So I'm, I'm talking a lot with production designers and concept uh, artists on what things should look like. Um, I've been invited to have a big piece in that, which is really nice, you know, because they don't have to do that. They don't have to let us be involved at all if they don't want to. Uh, they just have to mail us checks. But, you know, we've been invited to do a lot of stuff that uh, writers are often not invited to do. So, yeah, it's been pretty cool. Uh, and just to, just to be clear for listeners, uh, you know, often they'll film a pilot and then depending on whether that's successful it'll go to series but this 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 is a deal where the whole first season is definitely being made at this point um they have they have purchased the entire first season yes so if they don't make it something catastrophic <laughs> okay <laughs> um and how many episodes is it going to be and is it, is it going to be an adaptation of the first book i assume the first season or uh, yes it is an adaptation of the series uh, i'm not actually yet allowed to talk about what portion of the series the first season will cover but it is, yes, it is from the material in, in the book series. 
Um, and it's 10 episodes for the first season. So, uh, and that could change if we go forward. If there's additional seasons, uh, that order could change. But uh, right now it's 10. Okay, and so I'm getting that you can't really say much at all about the content of it, like what changes might be made or anything like that? Not really supposed to talk about that yet. Yeah. Uh, that is, uh, so they're developing their marketing plan for this, and they have, uh, they have a process that they do when you release certain information, um, and, and how you package that information. And, and so we, we have to make sure that we don't step on any of that. So we don't really get to talk about much. We can talk about Mark and Hawk because we love them. And <laughs> that's already public information. And we can talk about, uh, Sean and Jason because that's already public information. We can talk about who the Alcon executives were who bought this because that's already public information. Um, the Alcon executive who bought it for Alcon is uh, a woman named Sharon Hall who has been working in TV a long time and she develops like Breaking Bad. Um, so she's she's a high power uh, figure in the TV world and along with uh, a gentleman named Ben Roberts. Um, they are the two executives who bought it for Alcon. So we can mention their names because that's already public information. <laughs> Uh, I mean, can you talk at all about the the process of being in the writing room? Just how often are you? How much time are you there? And like, how many people are there? What does the room look like? Uh, what is the? How do you? Is there a whiteboard? I don't know stuff like that. <laughs> I can't talk about it too much. Uh, Daniel and I have been here now for I don't know, like five weeks, and we're in the writing room every day for you know eight or nine hours a day, and uh, it started out with. Daniel and I and Mark and Hawk and one other gentleman who's an EP on the show whose name hasn't been mentioned yet, so we don't get to mention him. But the five of us sat around a table for two weeks and just talked about the series and talked about who the characters were and talked about uh, what the later books were going to be about so that we could start, you know, seeding some of that information in. And then the rest of the writers showed up after that two weeks and we moved to different offices. And now we're actually starting to beat out the episodes and, you know, what, what, what happens in the first season and how is that broken up into 10 episodes and what are the things that happen in each of those 10 episodes? Um, and then the end of this, of course, is that people go off and start writing scripts. Mm -hmm. And do you have any idea at this point when the series will actually be on television? Next year. Yeah. I don't know when next year, but they're pretty committed to getting it on the air next year with a 10 episode uh, run. They have a lot of flexibility on when they can start it. Uh, it used to be you had to start by a certain point because every show was 22 episodes. And so there was like a certain time of the year where all shows started. Um, that's no longer true. Uh, and especially with uh, short run series like ours, like 10 episodes or 12 episodes, those sorts of series can sort of start whenever the network wants them to start. Um, so, you know, they have some flexibility there. And we don't, we're not, we don't know exactly when that will be. Hmm. Okay, and then the other uh, James S. A. Corey project this year was a Star Wars novel called Honor Among Thieves. You want to tell us a bit about that? Uh, the it's a boring story. Um, I I I know some people at Random House, and uh, they were looking for somebody to write this Han Solo novel. And one of the people at Random House says, "Have you considered James S. A. Corey? He kind of writes stuff that's kind of like Star Wars, and or not really, but you know, I, I guess for those people, anything that's sci-fi is the same." 
but they were like, yeah, uh, you should talk to this guy. So uh, the people at Delray contacted us and said, would you be interested in doing this? And at first we weren't. Uh, I've got to be honest with you. We were, we we're kind of hinky on, on doing a Star Wars novel. But then they said, oh, and this novel will be about Han Solo set between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. And then we're like, yeah, okay, yeah, we have to do that, <laughs> right? I mean, that's pretty much the coolest character in the series in the coolest period in the series because it's it's still got all the sexual tension with Leia and uh, before the big I love you dramatic reveal in Empire. And so it's still got all of that tension. We still got the tension of is Han Solo a hero or not? Is he still a smuggler? You know, he's still struggling with his own uh, sort of feelings on whether or not he's actually a rebel. Um, that's great stuff. You have to write that book. So once they told us which book they were offering us, we had to. Uh-huh. So did you always know you were going to use the James S.A. Corey name for that? Or did you ever consider using a different pseudonym? No, they, just... they wanted they wanted to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, James S.A. Corey is a much bigger name than Daniel or I individually. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's, 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 he's a much more popular author now than, <laughs> than even Daniel is under his own name. Uh, all right, cool. And then, so, uh, I don't know, do you have any tips for writing Han Solo? <laughs> you know, well, you know what Daniel and I did is everybody gave us advice on which books we should read and all that. But the truth is, uh, Del Rey didn't want us to reference much in the expanded universe. They, they wanted, the, the goal for these books was to be uh, a novel that somebody who has never read any expanded universe books could pick up and enjoy, even if the only exposure they've ever had to Star Wars is the movies. So they didn't want us dragging a lot of backstory from previous Expanded Universe novels in. They, they, they actively told us not to do that. So what we did to research is we, we had uh, all of the movies on Blu-ray, and we just sat down and watched Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back over and over and over. Um, and, and mostly what we were looking for is the cadences of language. How does Han Solo talk? How does Leia talk? How does how how do Han Solo and Chewbacca interact? What does that look like? What does it sound like? Um, and just getting to the point where you could you could say anything in Han Solo voice, <laughs> um, where you could say anything in Leia voice. Getting to that point before you start writing, so that when you have to write a Leia line, or you have to write a Luke Skywalker line, or you have to write a Han Solo line. The, the patterns of their speech are just natural. It's just natural. You're not trying to force it to sound like Han Solo. Um, because I, I feel like that's a trap. If you try to force it to sound like Han Solo, then it kind of, the reader kind of can sense that. Um, but if you're just writing whatever as Han Solo and his way of speaking is just already built into your brain, then it, I think it comes off a little more naturally. So that's what we do. Uh, whether we were successful or not is up to the reader, but that's what we were trying. Uh, so, so when you're writing Chewbacca, do you say he growled, or do you like spell it out phonetically, or do you say he growled in a way that Han Solo knew he meant this, or? Yeah, actually, that's what we did. We 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 use descriptive text. You know, he, Han, or Chewbacca growled, he howled, he he barked, um, that sort of thing, and then just because that's what the movies do. Uh, Han Solo's reaction to Chewbacca tells you what Chewbacca said. And that's what we wanted. We wanted to have that sort of movie feel to it where Chewbacca makes a growl and then haunts him. It's not my fault. <laughs> um, so we know that Chewbacca just blamed him for something bad that just happened. 
And a lot of the humor in their interactions comes from that. Because you can see Chewbacca sort of growling around the ship and, and grumping around, and then Han's reaction to that, letting you know that Chewbacca is complaining about stuff is funny. That's funny stuff. And we don't want to lose that. So. Uh, and I heard you say that uh, one thing you noticed rewatching the movie is, this, is that Han Solo is always wrong. That is true. Uh, if you rewatch the first two movies, the things that are true about Han Solo is that if he says something is true, it isn't. If he makes a plan, it fails. Every single time. He is never correct about anything in the first two movies. Not once. The thing that he's great at, though, is improvising. So you have Han say, uh, we're going to make the jump to light speed, and then he pulls the lever and it doesn't work. But if he says, I know a few, I still got a few maneuvers up my sleeve, and then like starts, starts yanking on handles, <laughs> the, the Millennium Falcon does all these amazing maneuvers to escape, right? That's what Han is great at. Han is great at yanking on levers in the Millennium Falcon and making it do amazing maneuvers to dodge incoming fire. Han is great at like shooting his way past stormtroopers. Like he, he has a plan, it totally fails, a bunch of stormtroopers show up, and then he and Chewie just run at them shooting and the stormtroopers run away. <laughs> That was never the plan. The plan was never, let's just charge the stormtroopers and they'll chicken out and run away. But he does it and it works. And that's, that's what we love about Han. And, and capturing that in the books was important to us, that we have, him, we have him be sort of a bumbler when he's making plans. But when he's just improvising, he kicks ass. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've heard a lot of people suggest, actually, that the original trilogy works so well because of Han Solo, that he's sort of an average guy just trying to do his job, doesn't believe in any of this Jedi crap. And yes. it, it gives it this grounding in reality. And then when you make everybody a Jedi or president or something in the prequels, you lose that sort of everyman quality that, that makes the whole thing work. It's silly. And when everybody's taking it seriously, it comes across as silly. You have to have at least one guy going, come on, this is ridiculous. As long as you have one guy saying that, it takes the curse off of it, to use a writing term. Um, as long as one guy, you know, if you have something really improbable happen in your story, and one person in the story goes, wow, that was really improbable. That's what the reader's thinking, so having a character say it takes the curse off of it. And Han Solo is that guy in the first three, the, the first three movies. He's the guy who's going, this is ridiculous, what are we doing here, right? And because he's saying that, it's okay. When everybody takes it seriously, it's a little... It, when, when everyone on screen is taking it seriously, the audience stops taking it seriously. And that is, uh, that is a truth of storytelling. Mm -hmm. I mean, just what do you think about the upcoming J.J. Abrams, Ryan Johnson, Star Wars movies? I have no idea what to think. I, I don't know. I, I'm not a huge fan of the Star Trek reboot. But I, I recognize that J.J. Uh, is an extremely talented filmmaker. And his stuff looks gorgeous. Maybe it'll be awesome. I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to wait and see, I guess. Mm. And we understand Han Solo is coming back, so maybe that'll, uh, maybe that'll help. Well, the, you know, it, it, maybe. I, I heard the Millennium Falcon fell on his leg, so. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, cool. So we're just about out of time. Uh, you want to just talk about any other new or upcoming projects you have going on? Uh, don't really have any new. I, we got this TV show that's coming out next year, so everybody should watch that. Um, Siebel of Burn just came out a couple of weeks ago. If you don't have a copy, you should buy that. Um, and we're working on writing the fifth book. And is there anything you can say about the fifth book? I actually heard you guys say that you're really excited about this one. A lot of uh, plot threads are going to come together. 
Yeah, the fifth book is the sort of the axle around which the entire series is revolving. So we get to do a lot of stuff. We've been we've been dropping in hints about stuff in book five since book one. So, and and the tentative title for it is Nemesis Games. Um, but other than that, I I don't know what else I can really say. <laughs> uh, but I heard Daniel say they always change his titles. So. Well, this one, but they always change his titles, but they tend to keep mine. <laughs> I don't know why that is. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure, and, and we have a pretty good justification for calling it Nemesis Games, and it fits with the structure that they like. They really like a mythological thing has or does something. So so Nemesis Games, because we're using Nemesis in the uh, Greek mythology term. Uh, Nemesis is a, is a Greek god. Um, or a, a Greek mythological character, I should say. And uh, so they, they should like that. Hmm. All right, great. Well, I really enjoyed Sibylla Burns and really looking forward to Nemesis Games or whatever they end up calling it. Whatever they end up calling it, yeah. And uh, so, Ty, I just really want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Ty Frank for joining us on the show. And for our panel today, we'll be discussing Season 4 of Game of Thrones. And I'm joined today by three guest geeks. So first up, we've got my longtime co-host, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor and publisher of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and the series editor of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. He's also edited many other anthologies, including the recent books The End is Nigh, Dead Man's Hand, and Help Fund My Robot Army. So John, welcome back. Good to be here. Then next up, we've got Doug Cohen making his seventh appearance on the show. Together with John, he co-edited the anthology Oz Reimagined, New Tales from the Emerald City and Beyond, and his short fiction appears in magazines such as Interzone, Weird Tales, and Space and Time. You can read his reviews of Game of Thrones on his blog at douglascohen.livejournal.com. So, Doug, welcome to the show. Seven kingdoms, seven gods, seventh <laughs> appearance. Good to be back, Dave. <laughs> And then also joining us today is Teresa DeLucci, who you may remember from our panel on Ridley Scott's Prometheus back in episode 63. Her Game of Thrones reviews appear on Tor.com, and her Hannibal reviews appear on Boing Boing. Follow her on Twitter at TDeLucci. So, Teresa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back to talk about something that's actually really good. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. And so, okay, so, and before we get started, I just want to warn everyone that this will involve spoilers for every episode of Game of Thrones and every volume of A Song of Ice and Fire, so just be aware of that. And also, we previously discussed season one of Game of Thrones back in episodes 35 and 44, and we discussed the most recent book in the series, A Dance with Dragons, back in episode 48, so you might want to go check those out if you miss them. And the reason we're doing this panel today is because we got a request via our Facebook page from listener Anthony James. So Anthony writes, do you think Geek's Guide to the Galaxy will do another discussion about Game of Thrones, the show? I got into Song of Ice and Fire because of this podcast, and I enjoyed it when you recapped season one of the show. But you haven't revisited it since, and now with the show covering some of the most exciting events from the books, the last third of Storm of Swords, and touching on slash foreshadowing events from Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons, it might be a good time to revisit it. And he goes on to say, I think it's worth paying attention to which changes are made when it comes to the future of the series. Why? Because the showrunners know how Song of Ice and Fire ends, for one thing. Seeing what they chose to leave in might indicate what's actually going to impact the story most later on. 
So yes, I think the show may lend insight into speculation about the future of the books. When Talisa is slaughtered at the Red Wedding, it most likely quashes the possibility that Jane Westerling carries the heir to Winterfell. I also think that it's becoming clear that with Martin's glacial writing pace, the show will move past the books. That means that book purists will either somehow need to dodge spoilers for the next few years, or just accept that certain revelations, John's parentage, Danny's march on Westeros, Bran's fate, the nature of the others, the ghost in Winterfell, whether Aegon is real, whether various horns will actually do anything, etc., are going to come from the show. And we're going to talk about all that kind of stuff today. And when we've previously talked about Song of Ice and Fire, John and Doug and I have all gone into some detail about how we got into the books and what big fans we are and so on. But we've never heard from Teresa on this. So the first thing I want to talk about is just, Teresa, could you just tell us sort of how you discovered Song of Ice and Fire, how many times you've read the books, that kind of thing? Hey, uh, Sean Bean. I'm a really big Sean Bean fan. I had read the books, you know, before the TV series premiered. Um, I actually met George through my job. We worked in the booth at Comic-Con together, and I had no idea that I was, you know, spending a couple of hours in the booth with, you know, such a great writer. I had no idea. And not a lot of fans came up and spoke to us either at the time, so I really didn't know. But then when HBO decided to make the series and Sean Bean was starring in it, and I loved him so much in Lord of the Rings and the Sharp series, I decided, all right, I got a free copy of the book through a Comic-Con giveaway, gave it a shot, and I could not put it down. I don't normally read epic fantasy. I don't read Wheel of Time. Um, I don't, you know, Name of the Wind, stuff like that. I don't normally. I like horror. I like science fiction more. Uh, but something about this family drama just pulled me in right from the, the first chapter. It was right time, right place. I was in the right mood to read it, and I couldn't put down the series. I read books one through three, one right after the other. Took a little break, you know, for two weeks, kind of bracing myself. Everyone <laughs> told me Feast hmm. for Crows was not, you know, so great. So I came back with lowered expectations, and I ended up still really liking Feast for Crows because my expectations were already low. I had already been told, you know, John, Danny weren't in it. And I really like the Greyjoys. You know, they're badass pirates who worship Cthulhu. <laughs> that really spoke to me as like a horror fan. Like Euron and Victarion were just so evil. I love them. And then by that, by the time I finished, um, it was only a couple of months until A Dance with Dragons came out. So um, I've only read the first three books twice, but I've read Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons only the one time. You know, I've been meaning to go back to them, but the Wikipedia articles have been more helpful when writing my gaming, uh, <laughs> my reviews for Tor.com. <laughs> well, could you say a bit more about sh like sharing a Comic-Con booth with George R. R. Martin, like for a couple hours? What did you guys, like what exactly were, were the circumstances and wh what did you guys talk about? Gosh, yeah, this would have been um, when the Ice Dragon came out. You know, I also work for Tor Books and we published some, you know, middle grade YA book. So he had written The Ice Dragon. We had put it out as a really nice, like, illustrated edition. So this must have been like 2007 or so. And, you know, it was like five o'clock at night. And Patrick Nielsen Hayden, my coworker, introduced me. He's like, hey, Teresa, you know, this is George. We're going to be in the booth. And, you know, I'd heard some people, of course, like working in science fiction publishing i'd heard about these great books but i'm like eh, swords and dragons mm. and stuff like 
like I said, I don't read Sword of Truth. I'm the worst tour employee ever. <laughs> I've tried reading Eye of the World, could not get into it. Um, so I just hung out in the booth with this very friendly, you know, kind man who we talked about other books that we liked. We talked about, um, yeah, I just watched him interact with fans. Like fans kept coming up, not as often as they do now. He did not have a bodyguard. There was no entourage. It was just him and his little suspenders and hat. <laughs> and people would come up to the booth and say, oh, oh, hey, you're, you're George R. R. Martin. Oh, I really, really love Game of Thrones. You know, that was great. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, yeah, I'm working on the next one. I'm working on the next one. I promise. It's like, even then I got the sense that like, he just doesn't write very fast, but you know, he does what he wants when he's ready to. Uh, well, it's funny because we've talked about how John and I were both kind of uh, burned out on epic fantasy and Song of Ice and Fire got us back into it. And so it's interesting. It was sort of, it got you into it as well. Um, but uh, all right. So like, as I said in my intro, we haven't talked about the TV show since the end of season one. So before getting into season four, I just want to kind of do a quick, uh, you know, recap of what you guys thought of seasons two and three. Um, so John, why don't you start us off and tell us just overall impressions of seasons two and three? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I've, I really love the show. Um, and I mean, I'm not as much of a purist as like I know you and Doug are. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I think the books are better, but I really like the show. Um, season two, I think, had a bit of a dip in quality. I think they made a bunch of deviations uh, from the books for like no apparent reason. And um, they sort of amped up some of the uh, sort of more graphic elements like they made Joffrey, you know, a little bit more uh, more awful than he even is in the books, which <laughs> seems kind of hard to imagine. Um, cause like, just because, I mean, probably mostly because like you're seeing it actually visually on the screen instead of just imagining what's happening and, and, and it's all on screen. Um, and they did a lot, a, a bunch more like stupid, um, just sort of sex related stuff that was like, ah, okay, you're just going overboard here. And, um, so, but you know, but, uh, the battle of Blackwater though was amazing. Um, and so it was like all of the missteps in season two, I thought were, were worth it just to get to that. Um, and then, uh, season three, uh, and four, like I, I, well, season three, I felt like they really, really got it right back on track and, and I really enjoyed season three and season four as well. Um, but I mean, and like just seeing the red wedding in season three was like, oh man, it was so good. You know, it was like, and, and it was, um, and it was funny, like seeing all these like videos of like people, people shooting videos of their friends who, um, hadn't read the books. And they knew it was coming and like just seeing people freak out. Um, and so we actually got to see that a little bit in person as well, because uh, my sister in law lives with us and she hadn't read she hadn't read the books. And so um, when we were watching it, you know, she, you could just see her like sort of with her hands up by her by her face, you know, like almost like she was as if she was hiding under a blanket, you know, just like. It, it's just different just seeing it visually. Um, so I thought they did that really well. Yeah, I, I definitely agree, though, that season two was 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 weak uh as you know if you go back and listen to our uh comments on season one we were both you know overall pretty pleased with season one and then i ended up reviewing season two for wire.com and i really had a lot of problems with it uh if you just google david barker early wired you can go read all my <laughs> all my complaints <laughs> about it in exhaustive detail mm -hmm. um but i don't know doug what do you think about that do you do you feel like the the, the series dipped in quality in season two Oh, without question, that was the weakest season so far. Um, I don't want to, you know, rehash too much of what you guys already said, but uh, I'll give one additional observation is with John's storyline, I thought that had some of the biggest deviations, and I thought his was one of the weakest storylines, and 
you know, as we go on, it gets easier to deal with some of these deviations. They're not always for the best, but they were so tight in following the first book with the first season that it became really hard to digest some of these changes in season two. And additionally, with John's storyline, we met the character of Quarren Halfhand. And in my mind, I've always seen a lot of similarities between Quarren Halfhand and Oberyn Martell. Because in the books, both of them are important figures in their respective parts of the continent. And they have very limited page time, but they make very significant impacts in the story and their deaths make a big impact on the reader for different reasons, but still a big impact on the reader. And in season four, they captured that perfectly with Oberyn. And, you know, you saw Twitter freaking out. Mm -hmm. You saw some of those compilations for Oberyn's death, just like John was talking about with the Red Wedding. But with Quarren Halfhands, they really missed it with him. They, he was a weak character. I doubt most of the viewers that watch the show that don't read the books even remember the name Quarren mm-hmm. Halfhand, but they're always going to remember the name Oberyn Martell. Yeah, yeah, Halfhand got, really got short shrift. Right, so that was one thing that really bothered me because George Martin has this gift for not just bringing like the main characters alive, but the supporting characters or even the tertiary characters. And Quarren Halfhand, it took a lot of skill to make him come alive on the page as much as he did in such a limited time. And, you know, I don't think it was the actor's fault at all. He only could go by the material he had to work with. But the Benioff and Weiss, I guess they wrote most of the episodes that season, so they should shoulder most of the blame for that. <laughs> and like like John, I'll just add, I thought episode nine, Battle of the Blackwater, was amazing, but not a big surprise considering George wrote the script. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll just say, Doug, that I mean, my my overall, my biggest concern with the show is it seems to me that they've tried to give all the main ensemble cast equal time, Mm -hmm. regardless of whether those characters actually have anything to do, according to the events of the book. And that means a lot of the other things that are actually more important get short shrift. Um, Like, I don't know, Teresa, what do you what do do you think? Do you agree with that? Well, yes and no. I mean, I do agree. Quarren Halfhand. Did not, if I didn't read the books, I wouldn't have really felt much more weight from his death. Um, but I thought there were some things in season two that they did beautifully. Like, I loved everything at Harren Hall with Arya, Jack, and Hagar, and Tywin Lannister. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, that was good. equal parts of the writing and, you know, these fantastic actors. Charles Dance is such a great actor. He really changed my perception of Tywin. Mm-hmm. from like a straight villain to really thinking about like his motivation and where he's coming from. And I thought that set up the Red Wedding in season three so fantastically, you know, because I found myself liking this man when he was with Arya, even knowing what he was going to do to her family and mm-hmm. how messed up that was. And he brought a lot of charisma to the part. Yeah, you know, and characters you know, who did get their own point of view chapters in the books, like Davos, to see him come to life, he's played so wonderfully too. I really enjoyed every scene that he was in and it made Blackwater that much better. And I will say, yes, George wrote the script for that, but Neil Marshall is a fantastic director 
he's so good with the action. He really made that episode stand out as well. The cinematography in season two, I think everything kind of stepped up a little bit more. The costumes were richer, the cinematography. Mm. Like when they first go to Pike and you meet the Greyjoys, it was gorgeous. It was lush for and for such a barren landscape to look so beautiful. I thought they were really... I don't know, just showing like what HBO can do. It reminded me of the pageantry of Rome, you know, which is another HBO series I loved. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Actually, you know that uh, what you were just saying about the Battle of Blackwater reminded me um, just in the in this uh, in season four, the the episode where they have the battle at the wall. uh, Like, oh, my God, that one tracking shot that's just like pans around everything. And it's just like this one continuous shot. That's fucking amazing. And that's the same director. But yeah, I mean, Neil Marshall is a fantastic director and I always look forward to his episodes. And I think Blackwater was his first episode. Um, it was. I, I can maybe start to begin begin to forgive him for Doomsday now, but... Oh, I kind of like Doomsday. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say I thought season four was the weakest season of Game of Thrones. Really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay, but before we get to season four, let's, okay. let's, let's stick with seasons two and three for a second. Um mm-hmm. Let's let's say a couple other good things about seasons two and three. I mean, I liked the Red Wedding, and I I think aside from that, the thing I liked the most was where Daenerys, um, you know, uh, unleashes the Unsullied and mm-hmm. shows that she speaks Valerian. I mean, that part just gives me chills. Yeah, yeah, that was really well, well done. Yeah, Dracarys, that was as good as the Red Wedding. You know, that was as good as the Lannisters send their regards. Mm-hmm. You know, it was beautifully done, just so well executed. Uh, I think, you know, even knowing that it was coming, just like with the Red Wedding, it's still the way it was filmed was just so greatly done. You know, and I thought there were other really good episodes in season three, too, that were maybe smaller moments. Littlefinger's monologue at the end of the climb, about, you know, chaos is a ladder. I thought that was chilling. That was some of like the best acting on the show. You know, so I don't know. I really love season three as well. Uh, Doug, favorite moments? I mean, the Red Wedding in season three obviously was amazing. And it's not a surprise that, you know, we're, we're all enjoying that and referencing that episode so much, not just because of how powerful it was in the books, but as I'm sure you guys know, and as I'm sure most of our listeners know, that, you know, Benioff and Weiss, like the whole time that they were working on Game of Thrones, they were building toward that moment. Hmm. So, you know, they really unleashed on us in that episode. And, you know, it really paid off in spades, I thought. Um, I thought for season three, like I knew that they were going to bring Theon back, uh, which was a deviation from the mm-hmm. books, because in the books... You know, he gets knocked out basically at the end of book two. And then you don't see him again until book five. And I realized that's just not going to work for the viewing audience. So they're going to have to show the torture and, you know, the interactions between Ramsay and Theon. And I was a little worried that they were going to get into too much torture porn, but especially given some of Game of Thrones habits in general. Mm-hmm. But I thought they actually struck a nice balance and I was reasonably pleased where it's like, okay, so you have to create a storyline that's, it exists, but we never read about it. I thought they did a nice job of filling the cracks with Theon in season three. And just the way they broke him down bit by bit by bit 
And then by the time season four rolls around and you see this disheveled wreck that he is, Reek, you understand why he's like this because of what they did in season three. And if they just did what Martin did in the books, which I thought worked just fine, I don't think it would be as effective. All right. Well, I can see there's no escaping talking about season four. So, uh, all right. So let's just get into it. So, uh, John, uh, overall impression, season four. Yeah. So, I mean, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, I, I think it's not quite as good as season three for me. Um, I, I, I would still stick with uh, thinking that season two is the low point uh, as opposed to Teresa saying season four is. But, um, you know, uh, there was a lot of great moments that uh, I really enjoyed seeing brought to life on screen, um, you know, uh, of course, the 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 finale when uh, when when Tyrion uh, kills Tywin and all that uh, was good. Although there was uh, a lot of changes from the books, or a lot of stuff omitted anyway, that was I was kind of surprised to see. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of the other, a lot of the other stuff just like seemed to play really well on screen, like the stuff with um, with the Hound and Arya. And um, I thought it was interesting having that battle between the Hound and um, Brienne, which I don't think is in the books, right? No. Um, right. Right. So, but I mean, that worked pretty well. And I mean, I, I didn't mind that deviation. I mean, I don't know, like, I, I don't know what kind of repercussions is going to have by having that happen, but, um, you know, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. So. Uh, Doug. Well, uh, I enjoyed season four a lot overall. Uh, I guess it was about comparable in my mind to season three. Like John, I was surprised by the Hound and Brienne fighting. Big deviation from the books, but it made you know it made sense kind of in the end the way they you know jury rigged it, I guess. And the thing that stuck out in my mind, a big question is now that they fought in book four, uh, Brienne visits the Quiet Isle with that brother, and there's a point where they're actually talking about the Hound. And the brother is saying that the hound is dead, but he's speaking in metaphorical terms. And meanwhile, you see like this big hooded brother who's limping around with a mm. bad leg and he says nothing. And the, the brother's dog goes over to him and is immediately wagging his tail and everything because the dog is attracted to the hound because uh, that's supposed to be Sandra Clegane. So now I'm wondering, are they going to cross paths again later on? Like mm. Brienne never realizes in the book that that's the hound. Now, so, you know, what happens now? Are they not going to cross or almost cross paths later on? So that's an interesting wrinkle that they raise by having them fight. Although I thought the fight itself was great. Yeah. I was thinking back to our, our panel on best sword fighting scenes. I, I think we probably would have uh, been talking about that one if uh, had we seen it at, at that time. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I would actually I like uh, I like season four. Certainly better than season two, I would say. I mean, one thing that's, you know, I, I actually disliked season two enough that I stopped watching the show week to week. And for seasons three and four, I just wait until the whole thing was done and then just watch the whole thing, which is actually my preferred method for watching TV shows anyway. Um, but it does make it harder to remember than what happened because the whole thing kind of bores together. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, um, On the other hand, uh, any stinker episodes sort of, uh, it's easier to forget that they happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, John, you mentioned that there was stuff left out of season four from the books. Do people want to, like, what were some of the biggest omissions, you think? Um, right. Uh, I mean, for me, like, I mean, I, I just, like, 
me uh, thinking about um, you know that that whole scene at the end uh, right before Tyrion kills Tywin when uh, Jamie confronts him or, or Jamie uh, Jamie releases him and then they have that confrontation where Jamie confesses that um, you know the truth about um, Tyrion's first love um, and then you know you know so there was that so there's a whole dynamic that's going to be totally missing from the show right now and that sort of that sort of surprised me because it seemed like very important in the books that 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 would come back around at some point whereas in the so like jamie and and Tyrion leave and end their relationship as we know it now on on uh bad terms very bad terms in the book but in the show like you know jamie saved him basically and then goodbye you know and so it's like so the so there would be no bad blood theoretically um so I don't know. It's interesting. That's kind of it seems like a kind of a big deviation. Although I'm I'm sure Doug is going to have tons and tons of things that were left out. Uh, that's just what <laughs> that's what that's what came first to mind though. Well, well, before we get to the other things, um, Teresa, what did you think of the whole uh, Shay Tisha uh, Tyrion thing? Well, yeah, I definitely had a lot of conflicting feelings about it. I liked the way they had built up Shay on the show. She seemed to genuinely be in love with Tyrion. And I thought for sure, I was like, you know, I just, I had hoped that when Bronn told Tyrion he put her on a ship to Pentos, that she had actually gone and what was happening to her in the books would not happen to her here. Mm. And that she would be the whore that, that Tyrion is speaking of. Where do whores go? Because I thought that would have made a lot more sense than him talking about his first wife from however many years ago that was so not important to the book and kind of ruined all of Tyrion's chapters in A Dance with Dragons for me because it made this heretofore really smart, observant character seem kind of desperate and sad, like, oh, I just want to find like the one person who loved me. There are bigger things going on here than hmm. your first wife, who it's Westeros. It's like she's, dragons and shit. She's probably dead, dude. Get over it. There's a war coming. There's like ice zombies. Your family's in turmoil. There's war. Get it together. Use your brain. You've been using it so well up until now. That, so I was relieved that Jamie never brought that up because I thought it was just plain foolishness. But I was really sad about Shay because this was the season where they had to make her into sort of a villain in a way. And that didn't ring genuine to me towards how they had been presenting the character before that. She was jealous of Sansa, yes, but she was also protective of Sansa and kind of watching Tyrion with a don't mess this girl up. Like there was an understanding. And then to suddenly have her act like psycho crazy ex-girlfriend and testify against him. I understand why she had to testify against him, but she did it without any sort of remorse. You know, she's she's a whore. She doesn't even have any last name. That's how little power she has. She had to testify against him if the you know Cersei and Tywin made her, but she could have felt a little worse about it. And the only thing that was good at the end was they made it seem like Tyrion killed her more out of self-defense and cold-blooded you've been sleeping with my dad, which is also really messed up, but at least killing her out of self-defense made Tyrion come off a little better than he might have in the book for killing her in cold blood in such a way. So oh, conflicting yeah. feelings. I'm just glad like he's not looking for his first wife as far as mm -hmm. we know right now. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think Tyrion is a lot less uh, a lot less of a gray sort of character on the show, right? He's he's much more just clearly like good, but in a in a terrible situation. Whereas mm-hmm. in the in the books, he he kind of feels much more uh, you know sort of conflicted, um, you know, as as whether he's good or bad kind of thing. John just stole my thunder because I was no. going to say the exact same <laughs> thing. But I'll also give another observation about Tyrion uh, in book five. Uh, you know, Teresa was saying how she was so disappointed with, like, you know, the way he was being portrayed. But the way I looked at it, it was that it made perfect sense. Because if you go back to the end of book three, in the space of about 20 minutes, his entire life got turned upside down. He parted badly with his brother, the only family member who ever showed him any kind of love or affection. He strangled the woman he loves to death after finding out that she was sleeping with his father. And while he never got along with his father, now he killed his father. And now he's on the run and his only friend in the world, if you want to call it a friend, is Varys. I'd be in a Black Depression too. (laughs) So to me, it made a lot of sense because at that point, there was no place for him to go except deeper into his bottle. and. It took a while before he could pull himself out of that. He needed a couple of good kicks in the ass. Um, actually, speaking speaking of Varys, uh, did did Varys actually go with him in the books? Because uh, like at the end of the the show, like you know, he gets Tyrion smuggled onto that boat um, to get him out of Westeros, but then Varys also gets on the boat. Like I don't, I don't. They never but... explicitly say one way or the other. All okay. we know is at the end of book three, Varys helps him, you know, get away. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then book four, uh, that's one of the big questions. Where's Varys? Where's Varys? Mm-hmm. Where's Varys? All of book five, where's Varys? Where's Varys? Then all of a sudden, last chapter, here's Varys. Okay. So, I mean, you know, technically, he could have went to Pentos and come back, mm-hmm. and nobody would have been the wiser because he's the spider. Or mm-hmm. he could have just stayed in King's Landing the whole time. We'll never know unless George chooses to share that information with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doug, how about some, I mean, what are some of these other uh, big changes you think from season four, uh, that the season four made to the books? Well, there's, I guess the biggest one, a lot of people were expecting zombie Caitlin at the end of, you know, this episode, or I should say the season finale. And at this point, she's still not around. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, the fact that Balan Greyjoy is still alive. You know, if you want to go by the books chronology, he should have died ages ago i believe he was the second of the three kings to die instead Mm -hmm. he's going to be the third and he's still alive uh probably because they need to you know stretch out the Greyjoy storyline until they introduce uh urine and victorian oh do you think they're gonna i don't think they're gonna introduce any of those guys really i think they will i think they will i think you know asha Greyjoy or yara on the show um that was probably like the lowest point of season four for me because she basically just went to go look at Theon and got dissuaded from rescuing her brother by Ramsay Snow and some dogs. And then it's like, yep, yeah, he's dead. So I think we're supposed to have that in mind for next season, maybe, so that she could make her claim at the King's Moot mm-hmm. and being like, oh, well, Balin's son is dead, you know, and so I'm his, I'm really his heir. I think yeah. we'll see the great joys, but I don't. I'm a little skeptical about how that and the sand snakes are going to work out. Oh wait, before we get to that stuff, I, I want to say about um, 
um, Catelyn. Um, some people online were alluding to an Entertainment Weekly interview, I think, that kind of made it sound like she's not even going to be in the show. Oh. Yeah, they they did. But I think she contractually, she wouldn't be able to say anything. I think if they're going to show her, they're going to have mm. to play it really close to the vest. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't trust anything that Michelle Fairley says in an interview. <laughs> well, Damn you, yeah. Michelle Fairley. So did you shifty. guys see what she did on her Instagram? No, that no. was uh, Lena Hetty. No, I think it was Michelle. With the stone that- heart? Yeah, wasn't that Michelle? No, that was Lena Hetty. She wow. made that. For for her Instagram, she made a pile of stones into the shape of a heart, and everyone went nuts on Instagram and Twitter going, oh, my God, Lady Stoneheart. No, she just made a heart-shaped pile of rocks while <laughs> she was bored one day. Because they don't have – I don't. I was fine to not see Lady Stoneheart. I thought that was good because she doesn't really – what would she do for all of season five? Just string yeah. up some random phrase, really? She wouldn't have that much – to do. Oh no, I, I'm yeah. with you. It made sense, and I yeah. thought, you know, Arya sailing off—that was a good ending for the season. Yeah, I think yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of the some of these decisions that we're talking about here have to do with the the casting and and uh, you know the actors being available for the filming during the course of a season. And so, yeah, like you know, with Lady Stoneheart not having much to do, like you say, in the next sort of portion of the plot, they're probably going to try to save all of it for whenever they can, you know, actually have it make all make sense to have it throughout the course of a single season instead of like teasing it in one season and then, you know, having her just pop back, you know, now only to be uh, not, not be seen for quite a long time. And the same thing with the Greyjoys. I expect uh, whenever they get I, th- I expect they will get around to it. It's just that they're saving it all so that they can have it make more sense uh, in the coherent storyline over the course of a season rather than stringing it out. Since there's already so many, there's so many other characters they're bouncing around between, you know, it's, it's hard, it's hard enough to keep track as it is. I mean, I, I have to say, I mean, my, I, I read something where they were talking about wrapping this up in seven seasons. And my impression is that they're just going to cut a hell of a lot of characters out of mm. Feast mm-hmm. for Crows and Dance with Dragons and like wrap this thing up. I, I mean, you know, I, like Doug was saying, I think that, you know, they wanted to do the Red Wedding. They wanted to do all these great revelations from d- the end of Storm of Swords. Uh, my impression is that they don't want to like get into the, you know, get too much into Feasting for Crows and Dance of Dragons where things just there's like a billion extra characters and all sorts of crazy shit happening. And I think I think they sort of hit what they consider the climax of the series. And then they want to kind of wrap things up. Mm. Um, and so I, I expect lots and lots of characters going forward not to just be in the story at all. I would no think dark that, star. I, I'd be okay with no dark <laughs> star. <laughs> I, I would think that they have to not cut anything just so that they can uh, string out enough stuff to keep up to, you know, so that George uh, doesn't, um, so that George doesn't, uh, you know, continue to delay the show being filmed. Like, you know, it's like he's already, he's only got the, uh, uh, X amount of material. It's like, you know, it's if they, you know, at the rate that George is going, he's, you know, they're not going to have any new material to actually finish doing the show. No, I don't think that's a consideration at all. I think they're just going to keep plunging ahead, uh, you know, just firing full blast. That's why they like sat down with George and had him basically map everything out about, yeah, this is what's happening next. Because uh, they have those kids growing up. They can't like just yeah. wait for those kids yeah, to. So. That's why I think season four was my least favorite so far, because technically it, it is it is still as good as previous seasons. But now it's like the seams are starting to show there's loose threads, like the whole side jaunt with Brant going being taken captive at Craster's. I hated you that. Know, I really thought, you know, 
that that would be a good opportunity because I actually like it when the show deviates from the book a bit because it does give you new perspectives and you know like we saw with Bran and the Hound like that was fantastic and all those extra conversations with Arya and Tywin so I really thought maybe we'd get one chance it's like it's like the Starks are living in this like Taylor Swift nightmare of like we can never ever get back together Hmm. I really thought Bran Hmm. was going to have just a moment just like look across the courtyard there's Jon Snow, something. And it was nothing. It really ended up just being another filler, placeholder, have Bran spin his hoarder wheels until they could push him out to the the three-eyed crow again because his storyline was getting too far ahead of everybody else's. So that was disappointing to me. Yeah, okay. So, John, I mean, my my prediction is that, you know, they, 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 they like the first four seasons sort of you know pretty much followed the books for the most part but mm-hmm. i predict from here on out they're going to diverge wildly and oh, the show okay. is going to be headed to like straight for the straight for the resolution and mm. the books are going to you know uh, be a much longer project I, I don't consider any possibility at this point that the show doesn't pass the books i, I just I that's a foregone conclusion in my mind at this point i agree I agree. I'm just hoping by some miracle, Winds of Winter hits before the next season. That's mm-hmm. not out of the realm of possibility, but I don't expect it to happen. Right. Uh, I don't know. I work in publishing. I hear rumblings. <laughs> I would not be surprised if that book didn't come out until, I would say, July 2016. I'm mm. just gonna, That's going to be my prediction just because <laughs> the last book came out in July. This the Comic-Con season, the convention season, good for author book tours. My prediction. Call- uh, that's just- I'm making a prediction. But for, for what it's worth, uh, before anyone panics, she doesn't actually work for George's publisher. So. <laughs> right. No, no, I do not. So I'm, I'm I- just taking a guess. Yeah, I'll, I've given up guessing when George's books will come out because anytime someone guesses, me, anyone, they're always wrong. I'm just <laughs> saying it's not out of the realm of possibility, but I don't expect it. That's all. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I didn't put down any money on it. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, because the books, I mean, like I said the last time we talked about this, that I, I don't think there's any chance this is going to be done in seven books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would say eight or nine, you know, minimum at this point. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, you know, I, I think it's, you know, I, th- I expect the show to be done in a couple of years and the books to not be done for like 10 to 15 years. I wouldn't be surprised if he wraps it up in two books if the kill rate jumps in book six as much as I'm expecting it to. Like, he's always killing a lot of characters, but I'm expecting the kill rate for POV character, point of view characters to start going up. And if that happens, then the story will start contracting. It'll just be Rickon. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it actually kind of makes sense for it to be seven books since there's all the, the whole seven thing in, in the books. So it's like it, it would be nice thematically if it was seven. Yeah, I don't know if you yeah. saw you saw um, George's editor said, "Oh, it might be eight, and then mm-hmm. they they walk that back right away. But I don't mm-hmm. I don't think it's gonna, I, I don't think I it's wouldn't be, be seven. surprised. I agree with David. I think nine, up to eight or nine. I would not be surprised. I'll go seven eight. <laughs> okay, but but so that I mean, but I mean that's a very real possibility, right? That the show is going to get ahead of the uh, books. I think. Are we all? I We're think all, it's we all think a, that's yeah. I think it's almost a given. So how are we going to deal with that? As I think, <laughs> I think we all we all feel like we would rather read this stuff in the books mm-hmm. first, right? So how do we deal with this? Uh, the show passing the books. Yeah, 
I I mean, for for me personally, like I I would like to wait for the books, but the the reality is, like right now, I don't even really have time to read anything but short fiction and all the stuff that I'm doing for work. So um, the chance of me actually uh, being able to have time to read it, even when it did come out, uh, is very slim. So uh, I don't know. And and the fact is, and and the thing is, I you know I watch it with my family, and every I watch the TV show with my family. So it's like I'm kind of kind of leaning towards just go ahead and go ahead and uh, going ahead and going just watching the show, you know. Um, also, because I, I would hate to have to try to avoid spoilers for however many years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what do you do? Like just like stay off the internet for. <laughs> Well, 10 I've, years or something. I have I've, my strategy. I've been really <laughs> unlucky. I've had the very last paragraph of the very last page of both A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons spoiled for me. That's huh. not fair. While I was starting to read the book, I'd never post anything on Facebook. I just, I had happened, you know, I was excited. I was reading the series for the first time. I'm like, hey, I just started. You know, Storm of Swords today. Awesome. And some person, I'll never figure out if it was malice or stupidity, was just like, mm -hmm. oh, man, Cat Stark makes a great zombie. Oh, I'm God. just like, what? So I didn't know what the Red Wedding was. I actually thought oh. I had this. Well, no, but that wasn't spoiled for me because I had this thing in my head where I thought, oh, the Red Wedding had to do with that red comet that oh, was uh -huh. over. So I thought, oh, tell me of a freaking comet crashes into a battlefield somewhere and like takes out half the book so <laughs> i was very still surprised when the red wedding happened but i was not surprised for lady stoneheart in fact i was like son of a bitch she's going to come back as a zombie and it did uh, lessen the impact of it yeah that um, sucks. with the with the dance with dragons you know i hadn't i was trying to finish the book before comic-con i couldn't you know it's really long and I was on a red eye flight back and my coworker was reading it also. And he turns to me about like 20 minutes outside of landing in, in JFK. And I'm like, all right, I, you know, spent all of Comic-Con. I met George. He signed my book. I didn't get spoiled. This is sweet. And my coworker turns to me. He's like halfway. He's like, oh man, can you believe they killed Jon Snow? Hmm. I'm like, <laughs> what? And I'm like, air marshal, like I'm going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm at this point, spoilers, yeah, it still doesn't lessen the fun. Like there's the book and that's one experience and it's so much more rich and detailed and different in a way that the show can never be. The show is something else. So I'll just still keep enjoying the show. I am not bothered by like Jojen dying, you know, uh -huh. before he died in the book. Yeah, no, that doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm nope. immune. No, no, wait a minute. Who is this coworker? Because I, I I need to avoid this person. <laughs> Justin to... Goldenbach. You guys know. Oh my him. God! Justin, I'm calling him out you. right here. Justin <laughs> Goldenbach knows oh, I will Justin. never forgive him. Shame on for you for doing that. I will never let him Shame. know. <laughs> oh, but speaking of Jojen, though, I think Doug, do you have do you have some thoughts on this? Maybe. Oh, for sure. I mean, after that scene, I think it was episode four where at the end you see the White Walker, uh, you know, put his finger on the baby and the baby's eyes change. It basically becomes like a baby White Walker. And when I saw that, I was just like, what the fuck? You know, because I don't want spoilers for the books at all. And when I saw that, I mean, first of all, I would have just turned off the television, but it was at the end of the episode. I was like a deer in the headlights. I didn't know what was going on. 
And then afterward, I'm like, well, is it a spoiler or are they just completely going off the beaten path? And it was kind of driving me crazy, not knowing. I'm like, if that happens again, I have to stop watching the show because I'm a purist. I love the show. It's great to watch. But books first. I don't want stuff from the show ruining the books for me. So normally I would have said after Jojen died, that's it. I am done with the show. The only reason I didn't say that is because I've known for years 100% that Jojen is going to die. George slipped all sorts of clues in there where the way I read it, the only logical explanation is that Jojen is going to die. Because in the books, every time he says the green dreams never lie, his sister would become unreasonably upset. But we never learn why she becomes unreasonably upset. So the only logical conclusion is, well, if we find out why, then we know George is going to die, then it's not a surprise. So I knew he was going to die. And since the scene they killed him in the show already happened in the books, that means they're not even ruining the manner of his death for me because he's going to die in some other way. And maybe he still does something important in the books and they're just going to have Mira do it in the show instead. So nothing really got ruined for me there, but it's gotten to the point where I feel like I dodged a bullet. I can't take any more chances. So starting Mm -hmm. next year, when there's a new episode each week, I'm not going to watch the episode. I'll wait till the episode is over, at which point I'll ask on my Facebook account, hey, guys, can I watch this episode? At which point people will tell me, yay or nay. If it's safe, hey, great, I'm all in. If not, then I'm out. And then we start taking some precautions going forward for however many years necessary to avoid spoilers. <laughs> and I do have some precautions in place because yes, I have given this thought because that's how much I hmm. love this damn story. It's like imprinted into my soul. I mean, I totally agree with you, Doug, that Jochen is going to die for the reasons that you say, but it occurs to me that with a television show, they might kill off characters for completely, for reasons completely unrelated to stuff that happens in the book. If it doesn't make that much difference. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so that the actor, like, you know, they killed off, uh, Mr. Echo and Lost just because he was a pain in the ass to work with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something similar to that might happen. The actor is just not available next year or whatever. And they're just like, oh, we can just do without this character. So let's just kill him now. And that doesn't necessarily mean that character is going to die in the book. Yeah. Right. But I can't take that chance. <laughs> Although I, with uh, with Game of Thrones, it seems like that they they would be probably more likely to just recast somebody if it was somebody at all important. So, um, you know, because uh, they've already recast uh, a couple of actors. Dario, don't even get me started on <laughs> Dario. Ugh. Oh, Dario, yeah. Well, and the and the mountain is also he got recast twice. Three, yeah. yeah third, no, this is the third mountain. Oh, the third right, one. So he got this is the third twice. mountain. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, That's recast twice. Yeah, so. yeah, two changes. So, or three. Well, three different people. Yeah. And <laughs> this is like the most cuddly looking mountain yet. Like his <laughs> his face is so round and cute. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. he did not look scary. Actually, but, I was gonna I was gonna ask you guys, you know, the books better. Like, uh, when uh, with that battle between the mountain and uh, and Oberyn, um, uh, did did does his head explode like that in the book? I didn't remember that, but uh, <laughs> but you know, obviously, watching it is so much more visceral and, and shocking to see. Um, in the book, uh, the mountain says, "Then I smashed her fucking head in like this." He draws back his gauntleted fist, and Martin writes something like, "You know, in the cool air." In the cool dawn air, like his fist seemed to smoke because, you know, there's blood on the fist. And then there came a sickening crunch. So basically he, he didn't even squeeze. He just smashed his head in with what his face in with one fist. Mm-hmm. So it would 
yeah, yeah I think it was much minor more details visceral yeah. on the on the show that was that was truly terrible and that was very sad that was kind of crazy I kind of wondered about the uh about the realities of it though like could you actually even if you were the mountain could you actually squeeze a dude's head and make it explode <laughs> like that I, I I was very curious but um, I didn't come to any conclusions. Myth, I didn't see. Where's, Myth, where's Mythbusters when you need them? I know. Seriously, <laughs> let's let's get some busters uh, on the street, and uh, you know, get some some get. Let's just get the mountain himself. Get that actor. Get him to squeeze a bunch of heads. <laughs> see what happens. You know, I think there was actually an article about this online, but I don't think I read it, so I don't know what the conclusion was. <laughs> Dang it! Sorry. Glad that made watching season four very hard for me too. Like, because I felt like it was all kind of downhill after. Joffrey's wedding, mm -hmm. you know, because then now all I had to look forward to was, you know, Oberon. He's like one of my favorite characters. And it was so great to see finally, you know, as a heteronormative female, I just, you know, I feel like they keep killing off all the really hot men. Hmm. Every year, the cast of hot men on the show gets smaller and smaller. You know, it started with Cal Drogo and then Rob. You know, I I like Dario, like the original Dario. I thought he was fine. He looked appropriately smug and douchey enough, like how I pictured him in the book. Like he didn't need that blue beard and all that. The guy they have now just looks like I, I think I see guys who look like that in like Bushwick all the time. Like that is not Dario. That is just some lame generic hipster. No, that knight. dude looks like that dude looks like he belongs in True Blood or something. Yeah, he doesn't even, his look, he looks like he comes from Westeros. He doesn't look like a second son. He doesn't have any swagger. He doesn't have the costume right. So Oberyn was like it for me. There's mm -hmm. like no one else, unless they cast Viggo Mortensen as like damp hair or something. <laughs> like there is nothing left for me. So I was so <laughs> sad to see Oberyn go because he was absolutely perfect. I watched the season premiere at Barclays Center, 4,000 ticket seats to watch the premiere early on a big screen for a charity event. Oh, wow. When Pedro Pascal came on screen, you just heard like 2,500 women go <gasps> all at the same time and just gasped like, cause he was so perfect and just knowing what was going to happen to him, mm. man, that made season four really hard. Hmm. Um, all right. Well, like when, in the intro, you know, I mentioned that, um, Anthony was saying like, oh, well, what, what can we guess about the way that the story is going to go based on what they've chosen to do um, in the show? So, um, like, Doug, um, like, what the F was up with that? The, the, the other is turning the baby into a, or, you know, into a White Walker. And what is that? Is that going to play out the same way on the in the books, do you think? Or is it going to be a slightly different or? I really have no idea. And because, you know, it's something that was dropped by the show, I've intentionally been not thinking about it. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't mind if someone points out like a little nugget from the book where it's like, oh, yeah, that that escaped me the first time. So what does that mean? OK, that's cool. And, you know, you start thinking about it. And I feel that's fine because it was already there the first time. And Martin's books are like an onion. You go back, you read it again, you reveal new layers. But and you cry. And well, <laughs> and maybe you cry, but from the show, I felt like it was cheapened. It, it felt wrong to me. So I, I've been intentionally avoiding 
what does this mean? I, it just I, I want to know from the books what this stuff means. I don't. I think you're thinking mm. about it too much. No, that's the whole point. I haven't been. No, but Doug, you said on your blog, you said there there are like twelve shadowy shapes in the background, and oh well, yeah, just like when that sorcerer, you know, like the one that looks like Darth Maul, but yeah. like all white, you know, changes the baby. He walks forward, and I noticed that there were twelve shadowy figures in the background. Uh, so you know that means it's a total, including the one that changed the baby, of 13. And, you know, traditionally, that's like, you know, a number that's associated with like a witch's coven or something. So maybe there's some kind of coven of 13. Um, but, you know, after like I blogged about it, I just kind of put it out of my head. But there was also the thing where they re they accidentally released a synopsis that called that guy the, oh. night, the night King. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I heard about that. I was upset to have, <laughs> to have heard about it. <laughs> Uh, uh, when Doug, when Doug kept saying, um, when Doug kept saying, well, uh, the White Walker changed the baby, I kept imagining like a White Walker actually changing the baby's diaper. <laughs> That's the big plot twist. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I thought I took that scene as something different. I took it as, all right, we haven't shown the others in a while. The season's starting to lag a little bit. I felt like we knew the others were taking Craster's sons away and turning them into more others. Um, you'd have to kind of figure that, you know, if the White Walkers are coming to attack the South, then yeah, they have a social hierarchy. They have a structure. Just the teeny little glimpse as a reminder of why Craster's tradition is so horrible. I didn't, I, I felt like you're reading too much into it. Now, okay. Yeah, they called that guy the Knight's King. That is unusual, but I don't think it was that big a deal. Uh, well, I mean, I guess it's, you know, to each their own. And yeah. you could be right. It could just be something that's completely different, in which case, hey, no harm done. But that was my whole point from earlier is I don't know if it's completely different. And if it is something that's right out of the books, when I hit that moment in the book, it's not going to have the same impact that I want it to have. I mean, these are my favorite books ever. And with all due respect to all the incredible authors that I've read over the years, there there isn't a close second for me. So I don't want to get this story secondhand, which is how I view the HBO series, as much as I like it. Does anyone have any new theory? Like, I, since the last time we talked about this, which was when Dance with Dragons came out, does anyone have any new theories about what the others are, or like the prophecies, the dragons, three heads, all that kind of stuff? Hmm. Not me. I don't. I don't remember all the books and stuff all well enough. Like, I certainly am a total amateur compared to you guys. So, okay. Well, I'll just say I was reading. I read actually one of Teresa's Teresa's last review, and I was just reading through all the comments on it. And somebody said had this theory. I thought it was good. I'd never heard this before. But they said my theory is that the Walkers are corrupted children who did this to themselves in an attempt to combat the First Men, creating the imbalance that led to the birth of dragons. That's a pretty good theory. Yeah, that's a good theory. Um, Should have had that guy in the show. <laughs> I'll go back and look for him. Uh, no, I think that's that's a good theory. I'm still holding out for what I enjoy about reading the series and watching the show. It's more the characters and how they react to things like the history, the magic, the dragons, the others around them. So for me, it's like I always wonder, like, all right, even after Jon Snow's death, like, 
how are they going to bring him back? Because he has to be the ice part of the Song of Ice and Fire. Like, I'm still oh, holding out that I have and a, Danny will I have come a theory together. On that. I have a theory on Jon Snow, if you want to hear it. Uh, yes. Should I? Uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, just based on all the clues they've dropped that Jon Snow is going to be Azor High Reborn. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I remember there was one point in the fifth book, and I think that kind of cinched it for me. Uh, Melisandre is like trying to find Stannis and she, who she still thinks is Azor High Reborn. And she says something like, you know, I keep trying to find Stannis and all the Lord of Light shows me is snow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at that point I was like, ding, 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 ding. Like I was already pretty sure, but, you know, I've heard some people think that maybe Azor High Reborn is uh, Daenerys. And if it's not John, I'm sure it is Dany, but my money is on John, especially since he's pretty much bleeding to death now in the snow. You need a way to bring him back. So this was already in place. Okay. Actually, speaking of that, Doug, another person posted a comment on Teresa's thing to this Reddit thread with a crazy theory that, um, uh, you know, okay. Okay. So like really stop listening if you don't want highly speculative spoiler type theories, right? But um, the um, you know there's this popular fan theory that John is the son of Rhaegar Targaryen and uh, Lyanna Stark, and so like at some point maybe he's going to need some uh, evidence of that, something to establish his um, uh, parentage, his blood- yeah, his bloodline, whatever. And and so this theory is that Rhaegar's harp is hidden in the crypts of Winterfell, and there's actually some fairly interesting. Uh, evidence to that effect along with maybe the um you know like in westeros they swap cloaks when you get married mm-hmm. and so along with maybe the cloak proving that rhaegar and Lyanna were married which would establish john's both who john's parents were and uh that that he was born legitimately and is not a bastard as previously thought okay and then just another thing i want to mention is that i've been convinced since the beginning that the um the whites, the animated corpses, were all being controlled, probably by some blood raven type war, you know, evil other war, right? Because if you read George's old science fiction short stories, he has this whole series of stories that were collected in a book called Songs the Dead Men Sing, where there's this technology in the future that allows you to control multiple zombie bodies at once and use them for manual labor. And if you if you've read all of John uh, if you've read all of George's previous work and then you read Song of Ice and Fire, you see how he took all these ideas from all his previous work and kind of stuck them together. So I've been convinced that that's been going on this whole time, and I think that that received support in the show when the skeletons try to run into the tree where Blood Raven is and they fall apart, and Jojen says the power that controls them has no reach here or something like that, mm-hmm. and I think that pretty clearly indicates that I was right. <laughs> I hated those skeletons, by the way. It felt so Dungeons and Dragons. Well, I hated the fireball. That reminded me of that um, too. Uh, <laughs> th- that, was, that, that, that scene. No, it was, it was right. It was right out of uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where there's the wizard <laughs> like throwing the fireballs. That's what it reminded <laughs> me of. Yeah, between that with the little uh, pirates of the Caribbean thrown in, yeah, I wasn't a huge fan of that. I mean, now I'm curious to see what Bran is going to do all next season. He'll just be chilling underneath the snow in his cave, having visions. No, see, no, see, they're going to diverge from the. I, I predict they're going to diverge from the books totally, and all sorts of crazy, made-up shit is going to happen to Bran mm. and Arya and those kinds of characters. 
Oh, really? Mm-hmm. You heard well, it here plenty, first. Well, there's okay. plenty of re- there's plenty of real shit for Arya to do, though. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, I I I know she doesn't. It doesn't happen. I, I, what I guess it mostly doesn't happen until book five, right? But but it doesn't really matter to the yeah, show. Yeah, but it's I don't all think. Tra- it's all like training stuff. They're not going to spend the whole oh. season of her, of yeah. her or Brand just training. I don't. Yeah, I, don't I guess see that's that happening. Yeah, no, you're right. I I just can't wait to see Arya actually go do all the stuff with the Faceless Men and all that. So. Oh yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, I guess I wouldn't be surprised though if they did make a lot of the season like a season long training montage for the Star Kids. <laughs> because I feel like in Marine this year, they were kind of Danny didn't really do very much. She sat council a few times, you know, at the very beginning she crucified some masters. Uh she met the man who, you know, she'll eventually you know, spoiler, you know, get married to, but they just, I felt like Marine was just like wheel spinning. Like they really dragged that out of it until they got to the end. Like her big moment at the end was learning that Drogon, you know, had killed a child when in the books, there was so much other stuff going on in Marine with the sons of the harpy, the plague, you know, just more intrigue. You know, so I think they'll have to step that up for next year and lead to her big moment being, you know, getting reunited with Drogon again. I have to say, though, uh, Teresa, I did really like where she locks her dragons away in that. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that was heartbreaking. Whatever. Yeah, it was like that the cinematography. Really the cinematography was gorgeous and just emotionally it was really moving. And I, mm-hmm. I really thought it was effective. Oh, I agree. I thought the actor who played the shepherd was he just brought a tear to my eye the way he sold his grief so well just mm-hmm. that was that was really sad and i watched it with um you know some people who hadn't seen it before and we're just like oh no oh god oh god why is he crying oh my god you know like the big shock of that you know he, that that actor was great and that mm-hmm. was such a good moment for danny i just wish she had more to do like earlier in the season it was kind of like all she did was exile Ser Jorah from the friend zone. <laughs> and braid her handmaiden's hair. Yeah. They, had a, they had a long conversation about uh, her relationship status. Uh, I, that's true. I, I mean, I, I'm kind of curious to see that Grey Worm. Yeah. Grey, Grey Worm and uh, Misande, you know, there'll be like the, the little couple to root for. You know, her handmaiden's always got to have a little side romance going on, just like her Kalisar. Uh, girl did oh yeah right i actually found it kind of ironic that you know she was taking the time to braid her servant's hair and you know gossip about gray worm the week after she was dealing with 212 supplicants it's like you know when is it ever going to end but it's like oh okay but now i'll braid your hair everyone's got to relax you don't understand (laughs) how women work sometimes you just need to blow off some steam and talk about stupid shit Doug, like, Doug, this this was a this was a metaphor for George and his writing. It's like <laughs> that's why he does these other projects. He has to take a little break now and then. That's why he has to watch football. He can't just write Song of Ice and Fire all the time. I know that's why he has to be on John Oliver's show and Jimmy exactly. Kimmel's show. Like <laughs> I gotta say, I know he's not my bitch, but I'm getting a little annoyed with seeing him on late night TV like this whole summer. What are you doing? <laughs> Well, I mean, he was on—he was on John Oliver for like thirty seconds. I don't I mean, care. That's thirty re- seconds remotely. And and he was sitting at his keyboard typing as he yeah. was doing it. Yeah, did you guys? He was did just you guys... doing it for a show. I I tried looking at screen cap. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> did anybody zoom like, in? It was like his fantasy football pool. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I actually heard someone, I don't know if this is true or not, but somebody told me that John Scalzi at some point posted a thing saying that he actually like calculated at some point that George R. R. Martin actually writes as fast as he does. It's just that he writes, you know, John Scalzi writes like 100,000 word books and has them come out every year. But and George writes like, I don't even know, 400,000 words books and has them come out every like four or five years. And actually, George is actually a fairly, you know, productive writer. It's just that the books are so gigantic that it just seems like he, you know, is just always doing something besides writing. I think that's fair. And he's written a bunch of novellas, even between Dance with Dragons and now. He's written like at least two pretty long novellas. So he's definitely writing other things. I mean, I don't envy him that job at all. That's got to be the pressure. Sounds like it's really mounting. You know, he knows the show is going to bypass the books. And, you know, like I said, I agree with John. Like, the books are something separate. It's a solo experience. You know, I watched the show for different reasons. I mean, I was glad I had read all the books before I saw a first episode of the show. I mean, I had figured they had cast John Bean, so Ned was going to die at some <laughs> point. Wasn't expecting quite as soon, but I was kind of like, all right, well, that's, but here's the book and here's one experience. And now I get to watch something else and experience it in a different way. I would have to say I may be a little bit envious of George R. R. Martin. I mean, maybe just a little bit. <laughs> um, but actually, you know, speaking of him on John Oliver, like how surreal, I mean, I don't know, maybe just, for, I think for, for those of us like, like Doug and me who have been reading, you know, read these books uh, like 15 years ago, you know, to have George suddenly on Conan O'Brien all the time and stuff. And it's really surreal. I mean, the, the, uh, there's a news program I watch called The Young Turks. It's the most popular online news show. And like every day there's some sort of Red Wedding reference, you know, hmm. like whenever just talking about the news or something, it's like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Lannister sends his regards, you know, stab, 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 <laughs> you know. And it's, it's just so weird to have this thing that was so obscure for so long or like limited to such as like, you know, limited to like just my crowd suddenly like known by, you know, known and being referenced on, you know, in the news, just every, you know, on a daily yeah. basis. Uh, you know, as as cool as it is to see it like become so mainstream, um, I, I am I am kind of I it does kind of bug me a little bit that like the like references like the Red Wedding get dropped all the time now because it's like because it's such a great moment to experience without knowing what it is. And like <laughs> at this point, it's almost impossible to not know what it is before you actually read it or watch it. And and that's just such a bummer because it's like I don't know like I I, I have like vicarious uh, feelings for uh, for people who haven't been spoiled for things you know like like I, I try to I try to protect other people from being spoiled and and you know like I I get upset when other people get things ruined for them and so um so it kind of it, I kind of it kind of pains me a little bit to watch that happening but you know what are you gonna do yeah there's a statute of limitations on some of yeah. the spoilers I agree though I mean I when I got spoiled for those two books. Mm -hmm. I was really upset. I was angry. I was really upset. I don't like to spoil things for other people either. I agree. You know, just sometimes some things become so big that you can't mm -hmm. help but, you know, you can't avoid them. Yeah. Well, if, well, if it turns out that, you know, I said before that uh, I'm not going to be watching an episode when it comes out anymore. First, I had to check on Facebook and say, hey, can I watch it? And if it turns out that we hit that point where I can't watch him anymore. You know, I'm going to have to do my best to avoid spoilers, which, you know, based on this conversation, it's a, you know, a conclusion I already came to long ago. It's not going to be easy, but a couple of things that I'm immediately going to do 
is Sunday night until Monday night, that's social media blackout time because <laughs> yeah. that's when people are going to be tweeting, Facebooking, linking about Game of Thrones more than any other time. So, you know, if, if you're like me, do your social media blackout for like 24 hours from the end of Game of Thrones and you'll at least get past the first wave. Then you have to be vigilant. And but that's also- just a probing attack. That's, that's, that's just that they're just testing your strength, Doug. And I'm fine with that because my resolve is strong. And, you know, the second I can't follow the show anymore, that means I also immediately stop following, you know, Game of like HBO's Game of Thrones on Facebook, Twitter. You just, you know, you just pull back, you hold the line. And, you know, it's just basically those 10 weeks each season, basically my radar will have to be up every time I'm online, every time I'm at a convention. And thankfully, like my friends, they all know how fanatical I am about not getting spoiled about Game of Thrones. So most of them will be cool. Although, Justin, I have my eye on you if our heads <laughs> cross. Okay, so, so Doug, if, you, if given the, I mean, this obviously isn't going to happen. But if, someone, if HBO came to you and said, Doug, would you like us to cancel the show right now <laughs> so that you won't be spoiled for the books going forward? What would your decision be? I think my brain just shut down when you asked me the question, Dave. It just did not compute. Uh, but no, I would say go ahead and do your show. I'll manage on my own because I don't want to take <laughs> that much joy away from that many people. You know what, HBO? You do, ni- you do nice work. You know, continue making your little show. Uh, I'll, I'll manage, right? Just um, don't get something. David Milch to do the end of it. No David Milch. No Damon Lindelof. Carlton Hughes. No. That's all. Those are my only stipulations. You cannot get those guys to finish. We were talking before we started recording about how how like horribly ironic it would be. Okay, so so a while back, uh, George said that he didn't want to quote unquote pull a lost with uh, Song of Ice and Fire, and so we were saying like knowing Hollywood, maybe they'll hire Damon Lindelof to come in and write the ending, <laughs> or, like write the like, write the last season for a Game of Thrones TV show and just like have it make no sense whatsoever, like he did with Lost. Uh, so that's what that's what Teresa was referring to there. Yeah, Lindelof's too busy with his own show now. Like, let's keep him distracted. Let's keep. Him <laughs> yeah. Distracted. yeah, everyone watch the leftovers so he doesn't. So they keep doing it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, he, doesn't, so he stays contained to that one. Yeah, like even if it just means like putting your TV on the channel and not watching it. Like even if you have it muted, it's just like have it on so it has the best ratings ever. So that way he'll be he'll be occupied for years. He won't be able to write anything. And that'll just be the show. That'll be our omelas. It'll be that'll be the show we cast all of our sin on. So Dave, what about you? If it turns out that the show you know surpasses passes the books, right? Uh, what are you going to do to avoid spoilers? Because I think you're in the same camp as me, where you're pretty much of the opinion, no, I can't keep watching this anymore. Well, I don't know. It's yeah, that'll be really hard because, like, you know, do I want to wait ten years to find out how the story ends, or, or you know, I don't. I'll know. wait. I mean, but I'll, I will say, Doug, if if they would, if I had the choice to cancel the show, I would totally do it. That would be ideal. <laughs> that would be oh, ideal from man. my point. That would be ideal from my point of view. You know, they've already done all the like like stuff I really wanted to see, right? The Red Wedding and everything. And it's made, the sh- it's made the books really popular. And if the show were to just end now, then all the people would have no choice but to read the books going forward. And I would just consider that a big win all around. Well, now, if they that came actually, to me with this... George should say yes to that. I mean, shit, that would, that would be the best thing for him. 
Well, now, if they came to me with this question, Dave, like to return to it, would it get out that I was responsible for the <laughs> creation of Game of Thrones? Or would that, you know, just that would be top secret information? Because then I might revise my answer. Yeah, no, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Say, say for the sake of argument that it's completely anonymous. Oh, okay. By, by you, were like little, you were like Littlefinger behind the scenes, <laughs> oh, ruining then, everybody's good time. So if it, if it wasn't secret, what would happen is that the that Doug would get invited somewhere and then like somebody would slip up behind him and say, the Nielsen, send the regards, and then <laughs> stab, stab, stab. Actually, and, and then you notice like some <laughs> shitty indie band playing in the wings. <laughs> oh, God, no, it's Imagine Dragons. No. Actually, I'll say this. Even if uh, it could be anonymous, I still wouldn't cancel it, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, by the seven forbid, if George <laughs> should pass away before he finishes the books, at least there'll be some kind of closure with the HBO series. That's a good point. But I mean, like my ideal, I mean, this is all completely unrealistic, but my ideal situation would be they stop doing the show. We see how it goes with the books. And if there's some problem with the books not getting done, they would just come back and like shoot the end of the, you know, the last three seasons. I, they could just recast it at that point. I don't care. Actually, if you want to get ideal, just have them film all the episodes. And just, <laughs> yeah. just in advance, film everything and only release them as new books come out. Although people would riot. But that way, you know, you still get the show, you still get the books, and the book people stay happy because they're not getting spoilered. And, well, I guess the, the, the viewers, are they're upset because it's like the episodes are there, but why can't we watch them? Yeah, but I'd be I, furious. I'm still waiting for my Deadwood movie that I know mm -hmm. will never, ever come. Never happen. That's never going to happen. Which is too bad. Okay, but speaking of movies, I, there, there was some speculation that they might do the end of the Game of Thrones is a series of feature films. I don't know if anyone saw that. And it sounded like George was actually fairly receptive to that idea. It sounded like the HBO executives were not. But um, I don't know. What do you guys think of that idea? I think um, like, like Deadwood, it's too hard to get actors' contracts together. It's, um, well, they are making an Entourage movie, right? I feel like I've seen an advertisement mm -hmm. or something for the Entourage movie. Yeah. So are. Game of Thrones would definitely do a lot better than that. But I think anytime you stop a production and then start it up again as a movie, it becomes a whole different ball game of licensing and contracts. I, th I think there's like a lot of logistics to it that might be too hard. So I wouldn't, I don't know that I would even like that. You know, just let it end as a TV show. Yeah, my Deadwood movie would have been awesome <laughs> in my head. But, you know, now the show just remains as it is, like always evergreen and in my memories. And that's fine. You know, that's TV. That's life. It happens. You know, I mean, to me, t uh, movies are not greater than television, like by default, by any means. Um, and so, like, if something's great as a TV show, I don't want it to, like, quote unquote, graduate to a movie. You know, I, I would rather it finish as a TV show. And also, um, you know, the, the sprawling nature of Game of Thrones, I don't think would would really translate all that well to feature film adaptation. I mean, even, even if you even if you took one book or like, I don't know how much plot line they're talking about doing this for. Even, but even if you just took like half of a book, like how many movies would that take up? I mean, it takes up 10 hours on, on television till like uh, uh, one book or in, in the case of season three and four, uh, half of a book. So, um, OK, OK, you're right. right but yeah. John, OK, wait, we imagine at some point, though, there's going to be this massive battle of dr dragons versus ice zombies right yeah yeah 
And yeah. so, like, what if they just released a feature film that was just basically that battle with <laughs> like a two hundred million dollar budget? That would be pretty freaking awesome, in my opinion. And that would well, tear my so. heart. That would tear my heart out because here I am saying I'm not watching the show. The books are out, <laughs> and now, I'm, now that means that you have this ridiculous battle on the big screen, and I can't watch it. <laughs> I, 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 I think I'd go crazy trying to decide whether I should uh, watch the HBO series so I could see the movie or not. So I am hoping that the movie never ever happens <laughs> in a billion years because well, that's yeah. like the worst case scenario for me. Well, no, I think the worst case scenario I've heard, I just read today an interview with George where he had thrown in an example of, you know, they had asked him about, you know, the books are not catching up to the show fast enough. He's like, well, on Spartacus, they stopped everything to mm -hmm. do a prequel season. I'm like, oh, God, that's the worst case scenario. We stop mm -hmm. everything right now and go to Dunkin' Egg stories, yeah. which are which are cool. They're great. But we have a season of Dunkin' Egg, and then we'll get back to the regular, like the main storyline. I think I'd that be, would be the worst case scenario. I'd be much happier. With I that would be than totally cool with that. This is the divide between purists and <laughs> people who say, "I don't mind, you know, watching the show before the book, you know, before stuff happens in the books." It's just two different mindsets, and neither person is wrong. It's just a matter of priorities. Well, wait, Doug, I would be totally cool with a, what, what Teresa just described, a Dunkin' Egg season. I'd be totally, I'd be on board with that. That's great. I think, though, they should still, like, film the HBO season, though, because you have the kids growing up. Yeah. yeah so they would, have, they would have to lay out a lot of money in advance, but they make it up hand over fist, and they know it. So they shouldn't hesitate to do it, is my opinion. But, you know, the... It would just be I, like one really big flashback, you know? But Benny, I don't think Benioff and Weiss have any interest in taking a season off. Well, maybe they could get, uh, maybe they could get Damon Lindelof to write that season. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, you know, Spartacus, that was done under duress. That was a different mm -hmm. set of circumstances. But, yeah, I don't know. Like, part of me is like, well, maybe, maybe that could work. But... I just want the show to keep going ahead while mm -hmm. it can. And I actually, I like it when the show adds new scenes that weren't in the books. We get like, you know, Ross and Shay talking to each other. We get more Littlefinger and Varys together. You know, mm -hmm. now we'd get more asides with maybe Danny. You know? I don't, I don't mind when they add new things as long as they make sense. Cause there've been a few times where they add in new things. And when you take a step back and you stop and you think about it and you break it down, it doesn't make a lick of sense. Mm. Like, uh, we were talking before about that scene up in Craster's keep with Bran. And, you know, then John comes later on and it's like, okay, so they're keeping ghost in this cage and they're talking about how we can't keep everyone alive because food is scarce. But meanwhile, we're going to feed all this food to ghost in the cage who probably consumes more than any human. And, you know, just things like that really annoy me. It's like, you know, let, have some basic logic to these scenes if you're going to include them. And there were some other uh, logic doozies just in that whole uh, additional uh, piece that just drove me crazy. That was probably the part of season four that I hated the most is everything they put there. Even though I understood why they had to do it, 
because they needed some filler for Bram because his story's almost done in the books uh, that's been published to date. But, oh, that was awful on so many levels. Yeah, I thought there were a lot, like in season two, all the stuff they added, I, I hated basically. But I think they've gotten better. Like, you know, uh, I, I, the stuff they added in seasons three and four, I, I, I think maybe they're getting better at it. They're getting, you know, they've lived with these characters long enough. They're getting a little bit better sense mm-hmm. of it. And they gave me a little bit more hope that if they <laughs> wildly diverge from the books going forward, it might not be a total clusterfuck. Although I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm very apprehensive, nevertheless. Well, I thought, I thought this season was interesting that Sansa, you know, outed her outed herself to you know the people in the veil you know that didn't happen in the books i thought that was really cool like well wait a second i wanted to mention that yeah i actually thought that was an improvement over the book to be honest with you agreed um, the way that that the the sort of like in- investigation into liza aaron's death was handled mm-hmm. the one thing i had a problem with for that scene was peter baelish is in the books he's always this dude that's 10 steps ahead of everyone. Uh, Whereas in the show, he pushed Lysa out and the way they portrayed everything in the following episode, he was pinning his hopes. Like he wasn't even that he was pinning his hopes on Sansa because he didn't even have a chance to talk to her. She, he was helpless. And Peter Baelish is not the kind of character that puts himself in a helpless situation. If he can help. See Doug, the way I interpreted that scene was like, he knew that she was going to back him up. Right. Like they, they have a moment there, you know, and I, I, I felt like when he pushed Eliza out the window, he knew Sansa was going to be on, was going to back him up on that one. I mean, that's a fair argument. But at the same time, right before they brought Sansa in and she gave her spin on the story, she said, he said, you know, let me go get her. And they were like quick to prevent that from happening because they didn't want him talking to her, which is precisely what he would have done in my mind. Had he well, had that, that chance. Well, that may have also been um, a bit of theater for them to make it seem like, you know, like to, to give more credence to her story because she's going to back him even though he didn't get a chance to talk to her. You know, it's entirely possible is, you know, it's just it depends on how you want to interpret the scene. Yeah, I mean, that was one thing mm-hmm. where I thought that you could raise a question about right. the motivations. But I mean, if that's your interpretation, then, yeah, it works perfectly. I mean, admittedly, it's all, it's us all giving uh, Baelish a lot of, lot of credit. But, you know, I think he kind of deserves it, you know? Uh, <laughs> he totally deserves it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I like the best about the show is how much it highlights how Baelish and Varys are, like, probably the two people who are playing the Game of Thrones the hardest. Um, it, whereas in the books, like, you know, it's easy to sort of overlook them. I mean, unless, like, you're, you know, hardcore fans like you and Dave, you know, and maybe Teresa. Um you know, because it's like they're not point of view characters and they're just characters that people are talking to and you only see them now and then. But on the show, in the story, in like the books, they cast this shot, this large shadow. But like in the in the show, they, um, you know, they're much more in your face and it's much more clear that that they're, you know, they're really pulling all the strings. And, and I also thought that the way that that plays out with Santa makes it very clear. I mean, I had no doubt about this anyway, but that she's going to be, a, you know, a, the next the next generation of player in the game of thrones right she's mm-hmm. she's going to be the next little finger or something oh totally right i hope so when she showed up at the end with the you know she looked like mia sarah in legend after <laughs> she had she had gotten with the prince of darkness and like her black dress and everything yeah. so severe i'm like yep she's growing up now she's not like the little songbird dreaming about nights like she knows 
So I'm excited for that. And I'm excited to see where they go. Um, you know, will Littlefinger be bringing her around to the other Lords of the Vale? Like what's going to happen more long-term? Will we get more fleshed out scenes with Sansa coming into her own? All right, cool. So we're at like 90 minutes. At like 90 yeah. minutes. Yeah. So we should probably uh, start wrapping this up. Um, I don't know, like final, any, uh, final thoughts, predictions. I'm pre- as I said, I'm predicting show has nothing to do with the books going forward and there'll be about eight or nine books and they won't be done for at least 10 years, 10 to 15 <laughs> years. That's, that's my prediction. I'm on the record. Anyone, anyone else care to hazard a, okay. Um, I'm going <laughs> to go books seven or eight books. Uh, the show, they realize, wow, we thought we could keep it to seven seasons. Turns out it's going to be eight, just like with George, where he originally thought it was a trilogy and it just kept growing. I think the same thing's going to happen to the show, and it won't even be padding. They'll just have to do an extra season. They, The story was bigger than they realized. And I think we will get those Greyjoys, but I think they're going to hold off introducing the Grey, the additional Greyjoy brothers until season six and they're just going to focus a lot on dorn in season five and they might cut aaron Greyjoy because so far in the books he hasn't done anything that's so essential that he can't be cut from the show that could change later but if they could find a way to cut aaron Greyjoy, i say he's gone from the show all right i think that we will see most of the Greyjoys in the next season um we'll see the king's move i think we'll at least end with the king's move Bailing Greyjoy has to die at this point. Um, I don't think we'll see the Sand Snakes. I don't know that we'll get an update on Marcella and Dorne. Um, I think the next book I'm going to predict uh, July 2016. I could definitely be wrong. I'm just going to hazard a guess. If I was working for his publisher, I'd want it to come out around the time of summer conventions. Um, I think the book series will probably end up being nine books. It's just going to keep spiraling and getting bigger and bigger. We've still got a long way to go and a lot of loose threads. Okay, and John? Uh, well, I'm the amateur here. I'll leave the predictions to the professionals <laughs> like you guys. I predict Vigo Mortensen for season five. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping. Someone get on that. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. Um, so before we say goodbye, John has a new book out, uh, Help Fund My Robot Army. You want to just tell us a bit about that, John? Oh, sure. Yeah. It's, uh, so uh, the full title is Help Fund My Robot Army and Other Improbable Crowdfunding Projects. And so it's, a, it's an anthology in the form of fictional Kickstarter projects. So it uses like project goals and rewards and uh, updates and, and user comments uh, to tell the story. Uh, but uh, I was going to say... Uh, when we were talking about spoilers earlier, um, actually one of the Kickstarter projects in the book is a device for a device called Spoiler Free. And so it's something that protects you from spoilers on the internet by like selectively erasing your memory. Um, and, you know, as you might imagine, uh, it doesn't quite, uh, you know, go all according to plan, but um, otherwise there would be no story. But um, yeah, so so that's just one of them. And then there's other ones that like, you know, you can help fund a, a wildlife preserve for like paranormal creatures. And uh, there's a couple of that actually do deal with robots. So the title isn't completely misleading. Um, but uh, yeah, that's out now. And uh, you can get it at uh, Amazon and, um, you know, check it out. 
oh my god, we need like a real app that will protect us from Game of Thrones spoilers. <laughs> that thing would go crazy. That people would buy that, like book fans, they would buy that and put it on their computers and their phones. I would. Yeah. All right, get on that, software developers. <laughs> uh, all right, cool. So yeah, but we but we really need to wrap this up there. So uh, thanks, guys, so much for joining us. This was a great discussion. Absolutely. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Thanks, dude. <laughs> and that was our panel. So thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Doug Cohen, and Teresa DeWucci for joining us as guest geeks. And of course, big thanks again to Ty Frank for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes including Christopher Beck in the U.S. and Antic Gamer in Mexico. And, of course, a very special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including Christopher Brown, Bruno Onkir, Daniel Eel, and Donato Cabal, who all just made $50 contributions to the show. I'd also really like to thank R. Chris Four and John Marshall for signing up as monthly crowdfunders. This episode was also made possible thanks to contributions from Raymond Chan, Jonathan Pottle, Kurt Donaldson, and Scott Osterling. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. And if you're looking for more podcasts to listen to, check out SF Signal's list of the best podcast fiction of all time. David Steffen lists his 50 favorite short stories that are available as free podcasts, including my stories They Go Bump and Red Road, which appears number 11 and number 34 on the list. To find the post, just Google SF Signal Best Podcast Fiction. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.